Welcome to the Film Seekers Podcast. Mainstream, art house, vintage, and documentaries. We bring news and reviews of big screen productions to your earbuds. We seek films. Now relax and enjoy the show. show. Hello and welcome to our eighth episode. Today it's going to be plain and simple. We're going to be looking back at the best of 2017 for both myself and Mike. Plus, throwing forward to some of our honourable mentions, and there's also a competition if you stay till the end. This is the Film Seekers Podcast. is neil ramji i'm behind the controls as usual joined across the table by michael ross hello mike hello thank you for having me back as expected thank you very much <laughs> for being here with I'm, us I'm, I'm just i'm never going to be great never going to stop being grateful that you allow me in the room each time uh, but that's a great way to be today as i said we're going to be looking back at last year all the films that we did didn't see yeah there's there's a few that i i wish i'd got round to that might have made my list if i had but there's so many these days to to try and keep up with and so much good stuff out there it is slightly hard to keep on top of it so let's talk about what constitutes a good film for your list yeah. for the, of the year what would qualify as getting onto that list for you mike um my best of lists tend to be the more unique films um so as much as i am a big old marvel fanboy and i hold my hands up to that mm-hmm. um they rarely make my my best of the year okay. um because they're just more fun they're more slightly brainless entertainment whereas it's the films that stick with you for me it's the ones that you think about in the the week or the weeks even after you've watched them that you just you can't quite get out from under your skin those are the ones that tend to stick with me it's interesting you mention superhero films obviously there was quite a few in the past year yeah and uh, a few one of them made a lot of people's end of the year list which was the film logan Okay, yeah. And uh, there's a bit of a snobbiness about that film Twitter and film critics in general saying, yeah. you know, it's a superhero film. Why is it making your prestigious list end of the year list? I have to say I, t- I took a lot from Logan and it did surprise me. And it went in a direction that I never expected of that film. Yeah. Uh, it, made, it, it was a, a Western for all intents and purposes, yes. styled on the Western Shane, I believe. Yeah, that's what I, it's not one I've seen myself. So. Okay. And I just thought it, it did something very, very vastly different to superhero films that I've seen before, which unfortunately, for my mind, they, seem like they are, follow a formulaic yeah. pattern and it's overseen by the head of the studio. So we talk about the Marvel films is overseen by Kevin Feige, yeah. who very much has a firm idea of where those films end up yeah yeah and the pointers and the markers in which you've got to hit as you go through them and we've got black panther coming up in a couple of weeks it'll be interesting to see whether it still adheres to those yeah or whether it can buck the trend yeah and uh hopefully it can i i I have hope for these sort of things but logan seemed to be something removed from all of that you had the superhero elements of of that film but um they were pared down and i guess portrayed in a slightly more realistic way yeah i think that's fair it's it's one where obviously post deadpool 
Mm-hmm. The, there was suddenly a realization that you can make a superhero movie for adults. Right. And and so I think that sort of played into it. It's also the Marvel is more of a machine, whereas this was uh, Hugh Jackman's last film as Wolverine. Sort of it's, it's you know, quite a, a career spent portraying this character. Mm. And so I think he was finally given a bit more of the freedom to sort of portray the character how he wanted to. Okay. Um, and, and and so that contributed to a, a slightly more mature film and and a sort of darker storyline and and a more grounded realistic setting. Like but it's say. not a film that stayed with you or, or would have made your it, end of year. It got of... an honourable mention. Honourable but, mentions. Um, you know, there's there's like I say, there is so many that, that sort of trying to narrow it down to a best of is is quite difficult. So just to summarize what we've just said there a good film is something that will stay with you well long afterwards for me at least yes it's it's one that i can't help but think about in the the time after i've watched it it's, it's not one that like you say that is forgettable that you sort of once once you've watched it's done you know and i i've watched logan a couple times now i've enjoyed it both times mm. but it doesn't stick with me the way the films i've got to talk about today did Sure. It's great that you mentioned watching films a couple of times. This is something that I think perhaps stops me from going back and watching a film is the fact it will ruin the initial experience. Like I'm trepidatious that I will then start to pick apart the film. Yeah. And my initial first watch uh, going into it blind uh, will be ruined and that it will take away from that. And then I'll start seeing other faults within that film. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's not so great after all. And you get that retrospective sort of look at yeah. it. And even though we're doing our top of 2017 long uh, after the, the year has ended, yeah. uh, to give us that time and space to, to breathe a little bit and, and look back on the year and, and, and sort of shuffle all those films into their rightful place in our heads. Yeah. Rewatching a film can sometimes be detrimental to that sh- that ordering of, of the films. Um, one film in particular, which we'll touch on a bit later on, is uh, Baby Driver is an example of that, okay. where it pitched itself super high when I first saw it. Yeah. And then subsequent watching undid a little bit of it. I'm not saying okay. it suddenly plummeted from... The, you know, the upper echelons to yeah. the, the, the bottom feeder. It didn't do that at all, but it just certainly took the sheen off Baby okay, that's that surprised me because that's one that I have come to appreciate more with rewatches. Interesting. Okay, I yeah, I picked mean, up more, sort of got some of the bits that I didn't quite pick up on first time around, and sort of knowing. I think possibly going into it having read up a bit because um, I follow Edgar Wright on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I find him quite interesting, yeah, yeah. and so reading a lot about the Easter eggs and the the many sort of layers that are in Baby Driver enhanced the film for me rather than detracted okay it didn't do that for me <laughs> but there there are there were certain things about it that we'll talk about it because i'm, I'm sure yeah. it's gonna it's coming coming up in our list today so uh, we'll talk about it later on also the experience within the cinema i think that also also plays a big part of in the enjoyment of a film whether uh, there are audiences whooping with joy and and getting into it and i know yeah. there's one film on your list we'll talk a bit later on where there was bits of that uh, yes. going on in, uh, within within the cinema itself yeah and it was a slightly special viewing experience for me personally as well so um, that obviously lent surely lent something oh, to definitely the definitely yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I know that uh, there's another podcast which we are friends with the atlantic screen connection podcast and they've recently delivered their best of last year and they spoke about the fate of the furious yeah which was the latest in the fast and the furious franchise and yes they conceded it was a bit of a trashy film. Now I can't really comment on that. That's their view. <laughs> uh, but the experience within that cinema 
uh, with audience participation, yeah, just really got behind them and gave it a bit more of a heft and a, and a bit more of an ex, you know that experience they took away with them and remembered as being one of the highlights of the year. Yeah, that's it's entirely understandable. It's one where uh, comedy is always better to watch with other people than on your own because mm. they will laugh and you will laugh and your laughter will make them laugh and their laughter will make you laugh, etc. Yeah. It, it just lends itself to the the viewing experience a lot more, I think. It's a bit like yawning in a waiting room. <laughs> and, and <laughs> yes, but, but, <laughs> chain effect. <laughs> yeah, this Mexican wave of yawns. <laughs> so those are the kind of criteria, I guess, of what we've decided to put into our best of 2017. A lot of these films are now available on home release and yeah. some of them have even appeared on uh, your streaming sites like Netflix and Amazon. So plenty of chance to get your head around them. We're also going to be writing up these in the notes. So should you miss anything or if you want to refer back to any of the films that we've mentioned, there'll be a full listing on there. You can go, oh, while I'm browsing Netflix, see if that one's on there or if I'm on a purchasing site, maybe purchase one of the ones that uh, ring a bell with you. So uh, they are all going to be in the notes. And if you want to find the notes, just simply press the art image and flick up and you'll see full notes there of where we're talking about certain bits so if you want to skip ahead then you'll know the rough moment of where you want to go to we're not going to be doing any of the other usual stuff today so no news no uh woke bro feminists uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be catching up with that in episode nine which will be the next one and uh, no festival news but there's plenty to talk about we'll be talking about glasgow and berlin film festival in the next podcast as well we have got a competition so stay tuned for that towards the end thanks to thunderbird releasing uh, you will know what the film is if you hang on to <laughs> the competition part which will be at, at the end we're still doing uh recommendations as well so stay tuned for that so I guess the other things that we need to talk about, the UK versus USA release dates. Now, a lot of lists include films that came out last year that were released in America, but are yet to be released in the UK. We're ignoring those, aren't we? Yes. So it's solely films that are released in the UK between January the 1st, 2017 and December 31st, 2017. That's where we're sitting this. Unless yeah, you've I got think... something vastly different on your list. No, no, no. I think that's the fairest way for us to do it. It's also, it it just helps me to sort of quantify it a little bit that way. Sure. I, I believe some of these uh, that are going to be coming up were included for Oscars last year in the Oscar ceremony as well. Yeah. Whereas these films may have actually come out the year before. So 2016. For the American for the audience. American audiences, but... so. As, as parochial Brits, uh, sometimes left holding <laughs> or waiting um, expectantly for these films. So if you're expecting us to talk about any of the following films, Lady Bird, not getting a release in the UK until February. The Post, which only came out last week here in January. The Three Billboards, once again a January release. The Darkest Hour, January release. Shape of Water, not out until February. I, Tonya, not out until February. Phantom Fred, not out until February. And Coco only came out uh, two weeks ago in January. So... All of those films won't be including our list, not because they're not good. It's just because they came out in 2018. Or in my case, I haven't seen half of them. <laughs> <laughs> We're also going to include films that are nominated for oscars this year as well if they were released last year yeah that makes any sense <laughs> it's just bizarre how this whole oscar thing works i'll do a little bit of digging and get some notes together for the next podcast because we will obviously be touching on oscar nominations yeah. as well what quantifies a film being nominated for an oscar and the certain things they have to do to enable them to be validated for those certain categories and we'll we'll go into that in the next podcast so what is a bad film we've spoken about what what a good film is what is a bad film 
Uh, and we're not going to be dragging okay. any films. <laughs> I, I was genuinely trying to think of a title that I could select. Well, you can give an example. That's not a problem. I just want, I don't want to drag films. We're not making a list of the worst of. I don't think that's no. productive no, at no, all. No, no, no. What is a bad film, Mike? Um, and you can give an example. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's there's various different types of, of bad film, you know. One that you can sense there's no heart in it, I think is is often one that I appreciate and recognise uh, an attempt. You know, so you can tell that there is passion for the film, even if it's not that well made, as opposed to something that's just slightly made for the money. Uh, uh, that will definitely, I think, play a part for me a lot of the time. Do you think that sometimes it becomes a job? Yeah. For the director and those yeah, involved? Yeah, yeah. And they're like, just need to get through this, get to the end, get paid, onto the yeah, next project. which, again, is entirely understandable. I work a job that I am not passionate about, mm-hmm. so I have money to live on. You know, there are lots of people doing that. And so... Yeah. I mean, we, we forget that aspect of it, that these people are doing this as a living. Yeah. And you're not always going to be in love with the things that you do for a living i can give an example of a film uh, the snowman this year but you like the snowman more, i did yeah more than a lot of it, people that, don't get me wrong it's, it's not on my top it's not in my best of no but I, I i did think that it had some merit to it but then technical aspects of the snowman where certain bits weren't taken out and yeah. not filmed properly and not included in the final cut you can see that someone in that chain couldn't really be bothered doing their job properly yeah and that, I guess, constitutes a bad film to an extent, or it takes away some of the good work that was done for yeah. the film. So let's give an example of a bad film then to quantify this a bit more. Justice League didn't work for me last year. Yeah. Directed by Zack Snyder, and then they've parachuted Joss Whedon in to do a bit of a patch up on the work because Zack Snyder has uh, had some family issues that yeah. he needed to deal with. Clearly, it is a film that's made by committee and had too many hands at the tiller and steered it in all sorts of different directions, and it made it tonally uneven for me. Yeah. The characters weren't engaging for me. The story was a bit rote. The main villain and the impetus to get behind it, you know, kind of pointless and an awful use of CGI. Yeah. No reflection on the people involved in visual effects and CGI, and special effects as well. Visual effects, special effects, two (laughs) different things. Yeah. Don't get those wrong. But a lot of visual effects in that film and the trend is to outsource a lot of that work. If you sit and watch credits now, you'll see an awful lot of foreign names. And mainly different from, studios involved in the process. Yeah. Mainly from India, I seem to notice at the moment, a lot of the work is outsourced to there. and, yeah. and Asia, Asia as well seems Malaysia, to be quite a uh, yeah. common one. Uh, where obviously the labour is cheap and yeah. it fits the budget, but then... I also think that limitations with some of the production of the work in the final product is reflected in that labour. You know, if you pay cheap, you get slightly cheaper effects. Pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Not to, no, you know, no. throw that's not... No, it's the limitations of those people. And they yeah. may, maybe haven't had the best training and they don't have the best resources. Yeah, because um, I, I suspect do. with VFX, the kit you are working on must play a large part. Mm. And so... I guess, once again, this plays into what a bad film is for me, is is if those bits aren't working for me, yeah. then overall, that makes a terrible film. Equally, narratively, if a film doesn't work for me, that can also make a bad film. So it can look brilliantly yeah. beautiful, and then all of a sudden, it just might take a twist in the plot, and I'm like, why was that decision made? And 
uh, wh- why are we going down this road? Or even the acting when an actor can't be bothered. Yeah. And it's very clear that everyone else is trying to pull their weight. And then this, this person who is central to the premise of the film derails the whole thing. And those things can obviously take me out. We can talk about the external things. So we can talk about audiences distracting you in the film. Yeah. And that can be part of the thing. In which case I would personally go and rewatch that film because I, I, I need to give it a fair chance. Yeah. But that can also affect... Also, your mood as well can affect the way you receive a film. Uh, whether you're going in with a bad mood, it can uplift you sometimes. Yeah. And that's exactly what you need. But also, when you're in a good mood and the film is also uplifting, it doesn't really... Have pitch, the same effect. Yeah, it doesn't pitch you up. It yeah. doesn't, doesn't give you that whatever it is it's trying to do for you. So anything else we can talk about what makes a bad film, Mark? Um, for me, a definite one is um, internal flaws in logic internal flaws in logic. so okay as long as you set you know films can be fantastical okay. and, and as long as you set the rules of mm-hmm. your world or story as long as you abide by those rules you you get a pass from me it's it's when you set up rules and then change it so a great example is uh it's something i've heard spoken about and and read about in a book is BDQ. BDQ. Which is Bullet Deadliness Quotient. So essentially, uh, a John Woo film. Bullets fly everywhere (laughs) and you can get hit with multiple bullets and still survive. Yet in other films, if a gun goes off, someone is dying. You you know for certain that, you know, they get hit, they are going down kind of thing. Um, And so you can't set a high BDQ and then drop it as and when you want. So say James Bond, another great example. Okay. He, you know, he will have people with submachine guns firing hundreds of bullets at him, yet you know they're never ever going to hit. <laughs> and so if you if you have that but then decide to try to change it to to give yourself a, you know, a a sort of moment of of seriousness and tension when earlier bullets didn't matter, that can ruin it for me. So consistency, basically. Yeah, con- internal consistency is 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 a big important thing. I think. Okay, when you're trying to achieve something, whether it's hyperrealism or realism in itself, if you don't adhere to that level of what you're you're doing with the BDQ, which I've never heard before, <laughs> but fascinating nonetheless. If you do, you know, this is once again like a tonal shift, isn't it? Yeah, in the film. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that it's a sustainability it's mm. it's a uniformity of style at least or or of premise or you know sort of fast and furious films great example nothing makes sense in those films and that's absolutely fine you as can long have... as they continually not yeah, make sense exactly as long as they don't try and suddenly switch to be all grounded and gritty and realistic mm-hmm. no i want to see tanks flying off bridges and cars going between buildings that's fine Mm -hmm. i don't mind that you know the laws of physics are not being obeyed because it's the same in every film they 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 are known for that at this point it's established Mm -hmm. um whereas if say a film like drive suddenly tried to do something like that it would stick out like a sore thumb Mm -hmm. because they have a different tone and then it's suddenly changing. And I guess this goes back to the the parameters within the, the film world that's being created in front of you. So Fast and the Furious is a great example. We can talk about superhero films where, yeah. great, they can fly. They can. Uh, I know that they can fire this out of their arms. Yeah. But then all of a sudden I can get really annoyed 
that this power comes out of nowhere that's not even been alluded to yeah. and saves saves the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can then just turn around and go, well, this is a crummy film because this is not set up. These This parameter is not made apparent yeah. f- at all throughout the film. Whether it's hinted at, that would be a nice thing to like hint. Or maybe I, yeah, that's often all coming. you need yeah. is, is to hint at it, is to make some reference to it. But then if it comes out of the blue, you're... I feel it's cheap. Yeah. And I go, well, okay. They, they, it's a bit like watching Prison Break sometimes, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed that, that series on, on TV, the American series about two brothers incarcerated and every episode would end in a cliffhanger and you're thinking, how are they going to get out of this one? And yeah. then all of a sudden something would come out of nowhere that was unexpected, never <laughs> alluded to, and they'd magically escape. Yeah, pulled out of a hat, as it were. Very much so. Um, within a magic film, fine. <laughs> within anything else, I need to know that something's going... Don't, And that's not to say I don't like the element of surprise. Yeah, it, the don't belabor the point, the sort of, you know, uh, there'll be a news report. On, on on the television during a film about, oh, this abandoned quarry. And it's like, you know something's going to go down at the abandoned quarry. Uh, that They can occasionally be a bit too obvious with that, mm. I think. But it, it needs to be, to be referenced or to be hinted at somehow so that, like you say, it doesn't come out of the blue and surprise you because something like that can... It, it takes you out of the narrative. Uh, a drop-in logic or a, a flaw-in logic, a, a swift change like that out of nowhere, it, it takes you out of the film because you're there going, oh, well, where did that come where from? That come why from? Exactly. Why is this happening? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and anything that takes you out of the film is a bad thing for me. Sure, sure, sure. Because then you start looking at, oh, this seat's a bit crummy that I'm sat <laughs> on in the cinema. Or, My drink's a bit flat. Yeah, or th- that speaker's not working quite as well as it should be. The visuals of the film are beautiful. <laughs> you know, which the is vistas. A, which is a great point because I think... I can think of uh, a lot of animation films. A Good Dinosaur is a very excellent yes. example of this, where the story just was a bit boring, a bit very low level for Pixar. Yeah, and then I started looking at the backgrounds, going, "Oh, well, that's that's brilliant. Which done that looks are so realistic. amazing. Yeah, they're almost photorealistic." with a very cartoon character as well, makes it, that sort of juxtaposition makes it more obvious as well, I thought. Then you're taken out of the moment and you're not really concentrating on the narrative, which I think for the most part, for a lot of films, not all films, is the core premise is yeah. to, to take you on the on the story yeah I, I want to go on a journey i want to be moved i want to experience life through someone else's vision you know that's that's sort of what i want from phil you're generally not there t- to watch an art installation no um, <laughs> which, which is what you would be if you're just looking at yeah, the scenery yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That's captured nicely and it's a bit like what we had from listener feedback last week where vin said it's great to know when someone's doing their job properly because then you don't notice it yeah and that's for me is a, a good film. Yeah. Um, when you're everything flows smoothly and you're not going, oh, that's a nice shot. I mean, obviously there'll be occasions when you, but if you're constantly going, well, oh, that's a nice shot. There's some nice backgrounds. Uh, their clothes, the costume design, and this is is amazing. Yeah. Unless if that's the sole thing you're concentrating on, then you're, you're not following the story. Not, and yeah. it, you can even have picked up on that stuff whilst watching and then when you think about it afterwards because mm-hmm. there's there's a few films on on sort of my retrospective that they are amazingly shot and part of the reason that i love them is because of that but it wasn't something that during the film i was there going oh well that's a well-crafted shot it's afterwards that you're sort of thinking about that yeah which i think it should be 
And once again, like we said, we've spent this time and given an expanse of time to reflect on it. We're not doing our top 10 list in November, like yeah. some outlets do, just to cram it in before December, because not all the films are out yet. And I don't <laughs> think that's fair at all. No. Let's uh, crack on. The UK box office top 10 countdown. We're going to be looking at the UK box office top 10 for 2017, based on money taken for the entire of the year. It does include Malta for some reason. (laughs) How bizarre, but okay. Part of the UK, I guess. And uh, obviously Northern Ireland as well. So this is according to Box Office Mojo's figures. The official figures will be out via the BFI website, the British Film Institute, on the 31st of January. So at this time of recording, uh, we are not privy to those figures. So those will be out if you wanted to get the real nitty gritty. Unfortunately, we've got all the money here in dollars, uh, but it should be fairly reflective of what went on in the past year. So from the top. Number 10. Spider-Man Homecoming. Now, this was the reboot within a very short space of time of the Spider-Man franchise starring... Uh, Tom Holland. In the lead role as Spider-Man, a much younger Spider-Man. And also Michael... Keaton as the villain. Yes. Uh, I saw this, I fell asleep during it, not because (laughs) of any reflection of the film per se, but because I was very tired at the time. I think we did we watch it together mike uh possibly yeah yeah you enjoyed this one i very much enjoyed it yeah yeah it took 39 million dollars which is roughly around about 25 million pounds and it's there at uh, number 10 number nine thor ragnarok last entry into the superhero sort of franchise towards the end of the year for marvel there from taika watiti as uh, the kiwi director taking the franchise in a very different direction Starring Chris Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston and Kate Blanchett in the villainous role. We both enjoyed this one. Yeah, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was hilarious. It uh, did something new with Thor, which we hadn't seen in any of the previous Thor films. Uh, added sort of so much comedy to it that I, I laughed throughout. Number eight. It's a reworking of the television series starring Tim Curry based on the Stephen King novel of the same name. This time with a much... Younger cast, uh, including a couple from uh, Stranger Things. Uh, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things, yes. Very, very young cast overall, though. Slightly differing from the original, which actually was a two-hander in the sense that it dealt with the young kids and then their adult lives all in the same shot, I believe. There will be an It too, where it deals with the second half of their lives uh, with a much older cast. I think Jessica Chastain is being touted as being... Yeah, I've, uh, I've seen the, the rumours, or heard the rumours, rather. Did all right for itself. Uh, was a bit of a surprise for the year. I don't think many people would have seen it taking as much money as it did. But it's one of those horror films that had a wider appeal, I guess, and had that appeal because of the Stranger Things for the younger audience, but then also those people who have read the novel Steve, uh, by Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, it is a long-standing novel and slightly older, and we're talking 30-plus here, who m- remember the original TV series with Tim Curry and also have, have, may have read the book in their, their youth as well. So hence why it is there at number eight. Number seven. Real surprise here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. A very late entry into the year, taking $43 million, according to this, roughly around about £30 million. And... 
it only came out in the very, very tail end of Christmas. So we're talking possibly the last week or so. Yeah. It's taken the seventh most amount of money. Uh, from what I hear, uh, very good film for what it's trying to achieve. Uh, it's based on the original Jumanji film very loosely, but updated for a, a new audience with the video game aspect. It's like a bit of Breakfast Club in there. Also, Kevin Hart's in there. And also uh, from Scotland. Karen Gillan. Karen Gillan. Nice to see her in a very prominent role in a, in a big film. Obviously, it's done very well in the States as well. Number six. We're on to superheroes once more. It's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. It was always going to do very well uh, based on the sleeper uh, expectations of the first film. And this time, they pretty much do exactly the same as the first film. You know, it's it's a well-worked formula. The Groot character appearing, appealing to a very young audience. You've yeah. also got the retro soundtrack because that is what the character has. You enjoyed this film? I did. I didn't enjoy it as much as the first one, but as you say, that's possibly... I went into the first one with no expectations. I went into this one with quite high expectations after the first one, and so it didn't quite deliver to the same degree. Number five. Paddington 2, uh, quintessentially British. We will talk about this in our best of. It is in there. Number four. Despicable Me 3. Now, the Minions had their own spin-off before this film came out a few years ago. You're not a fan of the Minions, Mike? No, I am famously not. But are you a fan of the Despicable Me franchise? I enjoyed the first Despicable Me. I say fan, Me. I say like. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I enjoyed I've the first one. I've seen your fart one. gun. <laughs> Ready to deploy at a moment's notice. Um, yeah, I enjoyed the first one, but as the Minions became more of a focal point, it, it took away from it for me, and so I've just, I haven't bothered to watch the third one. I've not seen any of the Despicable Me films at all it wouldn't surprise you to hear i have however seen the minions film and i loved it because it had a lot of the silent comedy and it had a lot of references to the silent era in that because the the minions even though they speak and they speak in gobbledygook a lot of their comedy is physical yeah i just thought it was a great film to watch i i I, it confounded my expectations going into it and it Obviously, the characters then draw people back to the Despicable Me franchise, and this seems to have done very well for itself, taking $62 million at number four. Number three. Dunkirk. Probably one of the biggest films of the year. Yeah. We're going to be talking about it in a bit. Yeah, it certainly features in mine. Okay, so let's hold fire on that one. On Straight on to the next. Number two. Beauty and the Beast uh, with Emma Watson of Harry, Harry Potter, Potter fame. fame. Yeah, Hermione Granger. And then also in the Beast role... Uh, Dan Stevens. Who you may have seen in Downton Abbey. Uh, yeah, is I think is his biggest role. I, I know him from The Guest. Yeah, The Guest, which is an excellent film. Uh, a very familiar face now uh, in, in Hollywood. I never saw Beauty and the Beast. I, n- I don't really have an affinity for Disney animation growing up. Uh, I read an article today about this reviewer or journalist saying how people need to grow up uh, around their love for Disney Mm -hmm. and how she felt isolated when people were talking about Disney films and references to Aladdin or Hercules. I don't really have any of it. I was watching other things when I was that age, uh, potentially more adult fare. I've seen the odd Disney film now and again, but I don't hold them to my heart like a lot of people do, and they love the songs. and they love, uh, Once again, we were talking about reminiscing about a certain point when you were in a cinema, and obviously there are 
strong feelings of uh, attachment and nostalgia to a lot of these. So when they were growing up, there's a yeah. time in their life when they were in whatever their home or in the cinema with certain people and they just remember those songs and watch, you know, I've seen children recently watch films again and again and again and again and again. And, <laughs> and it's almost like Stockholm syndrome where it becomes liked after so many iterations. Yeah. Of it. So I've watched very, very young children watch Moana and Frozen recently. They never get bored of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually, I'm sure when they, they grow up, they will hold those films as dear to their heart as some people do with Aladdin and Hercules. Um, and, or and, the and original Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. Beast. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure and, you're and, right. And the songs contained within them. And hence why if they make a live action version of those, I think there's an Aladdin one on the way coming soon to, yeah it'll appeal to the next generation so we shall <laughs> see maybe there might be a, a live action version of snow white down the line probably yeah yeah so I, I, it does seem to be that they're sort of doing it for as, as as many of the sort of products as they can once again then that will appeal to the adults who were children when they saw it and yeah. then they'll bring their children along with yeah. it and some may say cynically that disney are doing this on purpose uh, just to put uh, money in the can. But Beauty and the Beast is the second biggest film in the UK for 2017. Number one. No surprise. <laughs> to anyone. Star Wars The Last Jedi, uh, the second in this sequence of films, number eight. Number eight, yes. Number eight. And directed by... Ryan, Ryan Johnson. Johnson. Much to the chagrin of some Star Wars fans <laughs> who uh, we spoke about last week making their own edit. It's taken $109 million uh, in the run that it had it was released on the 15th of december within 15 days it made the most amount of money out of any film of the year yeah, yeah. which is unsurprising because of the amount of people that hold star wars dear to themselves we've just spoken about nostalgia attachments and star wars has that to it yeah perfectly fine film for me it doesn't really merit going into my top of the year i mean for yourself mike uh no it does not feature again it's it's the more escapist fare for me that i enjoy but it doesn't have a lasting effect or impact on me hello everyone this is jd from the in session film podcast each week we review the latest from hollywood california well yes brendan we also give top three lists okay yeah thanks again brendan Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, sir. <laughs> And now, it's time for our main feature film. Not a main feature film, but a main feature nonetheless. It is the best of 2017. We're finally here after all that waffle beforehand. <laughs> if you were smart, you would have looked at the show notes uh, just underneath the artwork and you would have skipped to this point. <laughs> so there we are. So let's Count down what we have like. We're not going to rank them. I don't think... I'm certainly not about ranking everything. 
into a top 10. We're gonna, just going to talk about the highlights of our year. So there's no necessity to shuffle that order. The first one we're going to be talking about is Mother. Now, that was directed by Darren Aronofsky. It's certainly one of my favourites of last year. This is my pick. For me, I found it a visceral and a heart-wrenching experience. There is so much going on in Mother that the character itself who is going through a tumultuous time has such an effect on some audience members that they also were triggered in a way. Yeah. And I don't use that word lightly. Uh, People who had suffered from PTSD that I'd heard had had certain emotions evoked because of what this character was going through on screen. And it is not a pleasant journey whatsoever or an easy watch no no way and there's i think this is one we talked about re-watching films i think there's a hell of a lot to get out of a rewatch of mother uh just because i felt towards the end when it was chugging along all the symbolism and these other ideas that are coming through i think there's much more for me to certainly pick through its themes and what it's trying to say and it was one of these films that we discussed on our second podcast as our feature so we have discussed it at length and just giving that bit more of a time, I've, I've since picked up different elements and symbols that came out of that film and have resonated with me a bit more. So even the passage of time yeah. for Mother has delivered a bit more than what I wanted. What did you think about it, Mike? Uh, it's very similar um, as to yourself. It's one that there was so much going on um, that I, I was sort of picking up on, on a lot of it and, and it made really made me think it was one that stuck with me for quite a while afterwards. But I am very much looking forward to another watch to, to get more. Because like you say, um, the the end, sort of the final act, as it were, things are happening so quickly and, and it's it's flying thick and fast sort of at you that you, you don't quite have the time to take it all in. So I, I, I am looking forward to, to getting more out of it second time around. And one of the standout performances from that was from Michelle Pfeiffer. Why don't you want kids? Excuse me? You know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. Then you'll be creating something together. That's what keeps a marriage going. This, this is all just setting. And that was a wee clip of Michelle Pfeiffer baiting Jennifer Lawrence's character throughout that. She's a scabrous woman in this film. She's awful to Jennifer Lawrence's character, who is quite innocent. And uh, we've spoke about the symbolism of her representing Mother Earth. So Mother is my pick for 2017. Didn't make your list, did it, Mike? It did, it actually, did. yeah. Okay, so that's a double recommendation yes. for both of us. It's a crossover, as we like to, <laughs> to call it, between the two of us. The next film on our 2017 best of is The Handmaiden. Now, I'm going to throw this one over to you, Mike. Yes, this is one of my picks. Um, I am a massive, massive fan of Park Chan-wook. I love every film of his that I've seen so far, which I believe is all of them. Okay, um, and any film that you would particularly give to someone as a, a bit of an in to Park Chan-wook's work? Uh, yeah, I think The Handmaiden is, is quite a good 
accessible out, to point. be honest. Yeah, um, it's slightly less extreme than some of his earlier work, mm-hmm. um, but deals with a lot of the same issues of sex, identity, sort of uh, the the state of career at certain points. So, yeah, I, I, I think The Handmaiden definitely works. A very long film, from what I recall. We watched the director's cut in cinema. Yeah, which was a good two hours 40, I think. Yeah, something like um, that. I mean, it didn't feel particularly long. No, it didn't drag for me. No, but it is a long film. Um, and maybe if you're not attuned to that, watch the normal version. I don't think you're going to miss much in, I in the know, standard cut. I know. As a devout fan it's one i was very keen to watch the director's cut but i I don't think you need to by any stretch so what drew you to the handmaider in in particular to make your 2017 um well it's a very clever adaptation of uh, sarah waters's novel uh fingersmith which is set in victorian england and one of the things that i really liked about the film was how it shifted that time period that sort of place and and very sort of evocative sort of time to 1930s uh, Japanese occupied Korea Mm. uh, where again it's sort of you had the societal strictures were a very big part of Victorian England and because of the Japanese occupation you get that in Korea in the 1930s Um, and so I think it just that really worked as a sort of supposition to take something that is very firmly rooted in a time and place and to shift it to some other time and other place and yet have it still resonate and work so well was i thought very impressive uh the performances i thought were great across the board Mm -hmm. um i've got the names uh kim min hee ha jung woo kim tae and joe jin woong who are the four leads um, who all I thought were were absolutely outstanding. There's sexuality to the film that I found quite refreshing. And it's something that I think as his career's gone on, Park Chan-wook is beginning to explore more. It's one where I know certain people, possibly yourself to a degree, mm. found the sex scenes tad exploitative. They were a little the, bit gratuitous. The, the male, yeah. and, and they are quite explicit sex scenes, it must mm. be said. But for me, they worked because they served to either further the plot or reveal character. So there is a, a sex scene that you see multiple times, and each time you see more. It, it's more explicit. It's more graphic. But that was to reveal character for me. It, it gave you... It's as the story sort of unpeels, mm-hmm. you're, you're seeing more of the characters involved in this sex scene, and and it's giving you more of a window to them where you possibly... At certain points, you know more about them at this stage. So, say, uh, Innocence mm-hmm. is is portrayed in one of the earlier versions of this scene that is then confounded later as you see it more fully. You realise that they're not, as, or there's there's not the innocence that you attributed to this character. Um, and so I, I, I thought that worked very well. I really enjoyed the visuals of this film that's not to take away from the story i didn't really know the story at all no. which was really refreshing for me and it kept me on edge going okay well where's this twist what what's yeah. going on here and uh, park chang wook has a history of 
throwing those twists into his films. Yes, uh, he, he likes to, to plot the hell out of his films and, and sort of handle these twists expertly, in my opinion. I think Old Boy's probably got one of the biggest twists of all uh, yeah. out of his work, if not in recent cinematic history, where it uh, perturbs you to, <laughs> to such a massive extent, yeah. uh, where you didn't realise that that was going to happen. No, it's a massive gut punch in the sort of end of the film. It's a very accomplished film. The Handmaiden in both cuts that are available, both on uh, streaming and uh, we fortunately saw one in the cinema as well. I really, really enjoy the performances of all of the four leads there. You've mentioned, I, yeah. I'm not sure who is who. I'm not I with my career. I can't quite remember at the moment, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it's now available to stream in the UK on yep. Amazon Prime if you have that. So that is one for a, a weekend afternoon, I think, would be quite Yeah, I quite think that's happy, quite a good shout. But not one with your parents <laughs> Definitely or, or young not. children. Um, or, or a first date. Um, no, that would be quite awkward. No. Uh, very, it's, very... It's, it's possibly one that I will... You, everyone has those films that are the sort of the the tester for potential mates <laughs> that you don't want to do on a first date but once you've started to like each other you, you you give to them to sort of test the waters and and i think the handmaiden would be one of those for me okay so handmaiden is one of mike's picks for 2017 the next one get out everyone's talking about all right i'll get, grab me coat uh, see you later boom boom and, tish <laughs> comedy awards for michael <laughs> ross uh, but get out by jordan peele uh surprised me because i didn't think that jordan peele was able to deliver something with such art and imagery considering what he's done previously now jordan peele is known for hooking up with michael keegan, keegan michael key keegan michael key there we are the man knows <laughs> and they are a comedy duo primarily. They had a film called Keanu uh, before this, which yeah. was about a gangster's, gangsters kitten. Yeah, it, it, I believe they wrote, but neither of them directed. And it's... it's uh, they both star in, though. Yes, uh, a cat, uh, their cat, rather, is um, adopted by a gangster. And so they have to go in search of it. And they're quite suburban, sort of um, middle class. And they have to sort of adopt these uh, street personas, as it were. Okay, so a shift in what you would expect uh, these two guys to act like, perhaps. He directed this film. He didn't star in this film, Get Out. But wrote and directed. But wrote and directed. And it has some of the finest performances of the year. Uh, There's no surprise here as to why it's been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, you've got Best Actor there for Daniel Kaluuya in the lead role. Yeah, uh, I think the Best Supporting Actor should have gone to Little Ray Howard. I think his name is, uh, who is Daniel Kaluuya's uh, buddy who works oh, okay. for the TSA. Uh, Trevor or Terence, I want to say. Okay, but he was he was excellent. he was amazing. Yeah, it, it was no, it was a small part, but it was one of those where it's like no small part really. Yeah, yeah, because he was vital. stole every scene he was in. He stole every scene, but he he added that comedic levity to the film which it needed otherwise it would have been too straight-faced yeah. and too much of a horror film without the necessary elements to sort of you know when you get a comedic part in a film and it sort of lowers your boundaries a little bit it lowers your uh, security yeah and then all of a sudden you're hit with something else straight afterwards it was necessary for that yeah. film for those for those moments to to work for us so Get out if you haven't seen it. And I, I believe pretty much everyone that we know who's even vaguely into film has seen this yeah. film. We all had different reactions from this film. Uh, and I've spoken to people who are of colour, who have been in positions uh, like the lead characters. Let me just get to the main point. The, the, the summary of the story is 
a, an African-American photographer, amateur photo- professional photographer? Uh, semi-professional at the least, yeah. Uh, he meets someone who is a, a, a Caucasian woman. They start dating and then they eventually cohabit. And then this is them meeting the parents for the first time who are very well-to-do and live out in the Hamptons or somewhere very, very posh yeah. in New England. Things aren't what they seem. As film seekers, we're not going to spoil it as much as to say that it is a horror film. And when that meeting happens with the parents, they initially seem very welcoming and friendly. But it's the subtle hints and the little comments and the asides that throw everything into the mix. I came out in that film because I have dated Caucasian women and I had noticed that I had heard those exact comments from meeting other people's parents yeah and i believe that someone maybe not have been you mike but someone has said oh that's not realistic and i was like i've been in that situation (laughs) this is wholly realistic these people do say these sorts of things i was only djing last night and someone had openly come up to me and said can you stop playing music by black people please wow <laughs> wow. And as if it were, there was nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's just an open statement saying, can you stop playing music by black people, please, and play something else? It exists. Uh, it may not exist in if you live in a, a conurbation or, or a large city, yeah. such as London or Birmingham or Leeds or wherever that may be, where you have large communities of people of colour, then you may not get that. But we, myself and Mike live in Wiltshire, which is predominantly... <laughs> a very white middle middle to upper class area. Yeah. We are the scum <laughs> in relation to everyone else. I, 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 am I, am I, talking? I, I No, I wear that badge proudly. Right. We, we, I'm not talking out of turn here. I get people look down on me all the time as if to say, do you speak English? And I've had people come up to me and go, yeah. before I say something to you, do, do you speak English? Or, or this was before your time, or you won't understand that. I have that all yeah. the time. I have interactions with people and I have people referring to me in disparaging terms and seemingly to them is perfectly fine. But yeah. actually in a wider context in within societal's acceptance, those things are wholly unacceptable in the way that some people have referred to me. And this is done casually. Just going back to the film Get Out, sorry, I made this very personal. Mm-hmm. It's not about me. This is about saying that this is an authenticity but, behind I mean, the film. Th- th- that I think speaks to, uh, yeah, like you say, an authenticity to the film. It, it clearly resonated with you. And that, I think, definitely has merit. Absolutely. Um, my parents watched it and um, they thought it was a very strange film for them. I don't think they particularly liked it when the horror elements came into it. I yeah. think that the, the, the film takes a, a definite shift. Yeah. But there is a large amount of people of colour and certainly the African-American community have taken this film to heart. It's unlike the African-American community at large in America to go and seek out a film like this, would you say? Um, I think that's fair, yeah. Because a lot of African-American audiences in the States, for the large part, I'm not saying every African-American person is like this, would go and see a a broad comedy or something with a lot. So from the Medea films, I think is an example of that. that. I think it's typical of they go to see the films that they feel represent them. And so typically a lot of these sort of films wouldn't feature black characters or, or African-American characters. And so you, you, you sort of, you gravitate to, to what you know. Um, and so that it's a great thing that this was made because it is giving them something else. It, it, it 
it's or giving all of us something else. It is sort of seeing a side of life that you don't normally get to see mm-hmm. on screen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so people have responded to that. And there is a, a, a certain scene where the lead character is put into an imaginary place, the... The sunken place. Sunken place, which with, uh, certainly on social media, I saw a lot of people of colour use it going, I can associate yeah. with this and, you know, this is how I feel. It became especially, a meme. It became, and it became more resonant, especially with the new American administration going yeah. in and the movement with that. And that's a whole other kettle of fish, which we're not <laughs> going to open up today. Also, the palette of Daniel Kaluuya himself, his skin tone, I think is very important to talk about. This might be a bit edgy. Yeah, yeah. I'm I might, I here. might, no, it's, I might let you you handle this. No, and I, th- I feel slightly nervous talking about this as a white no, man. No, I, I, th- I think it's perfectly fair to say that you do not see someone of African American or of Afro Caribbean or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, the black person on screen with such a dark complexion. Daniel Kaluuya is a very, very dark man. Uh, he is. I think of Nigerian descent. I'm, I might be wrong there. But if you think of other African-American, African-Caribbean, black people, black actors on screen, their complexion tends to be lighter. And I can't think of any... We had a little brainstorm before the podcast of any other prominent actors with such a dark complexion in lead roles. The only person I can think who doesn't have many lead roles or is, but is up there in the yeah. big blockbusters is Lupita Nyong'o, yeah. who was in... Uh, 12 years a slave and it's interesting how both these actors are going to be in the next uh superhero film which is the black panther film which yeah. is centers around an african made-up african state uh wakanda i think wakanda yes yeah. and it's a wholly black cast apart from uh, andy circus and martin freeman <laughs> martin freeman who people feel a little bit tokenistic but i think there's the realism there is the fact that you've actually got the main cast are all black actors at the height of their game chadwick boseman as the black panther and a lot of people are very excited for this because finally they can see a superhero film with a largely black cast yeah. that they can associate with and this is a whole different ball game for them that finally where white people have had captain america uh, Sp- I mean, basically Spider-Man. every character let's Pretty be much, honest yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then uh, equally then i feel a bit sorry for the other large demographics that aren't so uh hispanic community yeah. where are their idols growing up you know why are they always looking to white people in hollywood as their role models in life you know why aren't there why yeah. i can't think of a hispanic uh superhero at the moment uh no i can think the only one that comes to mind which is he's, he's more villain than superhero is uh el diablo from suicide squad recently uh, and even then it's that's not a great example because he's he's a gangbanger and and you know he follows quite a lot of yeah exactly of course he is he's got lots of tattoos and yeah yeah yeah, exactly as you would expect kind of thing and then i feel sorry for the chinese community um and the east asian community and i think sorry for the west west asian community as well you know where are their role models on screen um so i think that's an entirely fair point you know while recognizing progress doesn't mean that you shouldn't stop asking for more. So, you know, this is great that there is a, a superhero film that is largely uh, cast or, or peopled by people of color, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be saying, well, where is the Far East Asian or where is the Latin American? So Get Out made our list for this year. 
something on my list, Mike? Uh, mine as well, yes. Okay. And uh, we, we once again, I think this is a film that we watched together, yeah. wasn't it? Uh, so the BFI have their own magazine called Sight and Sound. And every year they do a year in review. Uh, they brought theirs out in November. So this doesn't account for a lot of things going on. And also they had an, a lot of funny things in their top 10 list, not necessarily films. Yeah. I would class their list as being top 10 moving images, I think. We've, I, yeah. We've kind of settled on in the end. So I'll just run through very quickly their top 10 list of the year. A lot of these films hadn't come out in the UK, so they won't be included in ours. And a lot of them aren't films actually films in the traditional sense. So they won't make our list either. So the Sight and Sound from the top, Number 10 was a joint effort, so two films here. The Florida Project by Sean Baker and Dunkirk at uh, number 9 there by Christopher Nolan. Number 8 was Loveless by Andrei Zagnistiev. Number 7 was Good Time, the Safdie brothers there with Robert Pattinson. Number 6 was Faces Places, the documentary by very, very famous documentarian Agnes Varda, hook up with a, a very young guy, a kind of hipster almost, JR, I think his name is. The two of them, Faces Places, number six. Number five was Western by Valeska Griesbach. I hadn't heard this one, by the way. No, no me neither, no, I'll com- be honest. Completely off my radar. Uh, number four was Zama by Lucretia Martel, which is really high on my list to get watched this year at some point. It's out in the UK in March. Number three was Call Me By Your Name by Luca Guadagino. And we'll be talking about that in a bit. Number two, Twin Peaks, The Return, the 17-hour film, according to David Lynch. (laughs) And that's the third series for them. And then number one was Get Out by Jordan Peele. There are some people contesting the fact that Get Out is there. And think it's almost tokenistic because of the issues that it deals with with race. And once again, it is a, a, a film that's prominently about black people atop of a list again. We've had this last year with... Moonlight, and a yeah. lot of people felt that was tokenistic because it was about gay black people. Which those people can just sod off. Because <laughs> <laughs> Moonlight was transcendental and they don't know what they're blooming talking about. Right. And same with Get Out. It's, you know, I am a white man. And yet both of those films resonated with me. I, I, I understand that they can have sort of a special resonance for people of colour because, like you say, it's about representation, things like that. But they are, I think well made enough that they have a universal appeal okay sorry no, <laughs> i'm climbing down off the get off, get off the ladder no I've, I've been on mine as well so uh, get out was one of our picks for the year there daphne is my pick you haven't seen this yet have you no Mike? i haven't had the chance yet i've been dying to catch up with daphne all year uh, it's the film that one of was nominated for quite a few of the biffa awards that's a british independent film award it's a british independent film it's one of the most realistic portrayals of a female character that i have seen on screen in a long time and realistic in the way that dialogue is very natural in the way it's delivered her impetus in what she does and the decision she makes don't conform to what you've seen before she's almost i would say seemingly autistic in places in the way that she reacts to emotions and deals with things in a very very unnatural way and say unnatural in terms of what you would expect from typical film conventions in the lead role is emily beecham and she's on some sort of abc series set in japan i think she's quite big name okay yeah i've not seen emily beecham in anything else she has very striking uh red hair The, the posters are 
awesome for this film. That's probably one of the other things that drew me to it is that the press for this film just was like, I need to see this film. But also because it's a, a British film as well, and I love to support British independent film. It's one of those things that makes me go to the cinema to see something different. Yeah. And once again, it we talk about association. We are British people and we can have that affinity to these characters and understand them a bit more than outside audiences to see, well, that's a realistic portrayal of living in London in yeah. this case. So Daphne is now available to stream. Um, I, I watched it the other night and it made my list. The Florida Project didn't make your list, did it, Mike? I, it's not one I got a chance to watch, oh, unfortunately. Watch no, uh, there was a... Uh, I'm trying to think of how to word this that doesn't give away the cinema, but uh, an unseen, you know, a sight unseen film. So you you pay a certain amount, you don't know what it is, you sit down and you you get to watch a film sort of ahead of its uh, release that I was unfortunately working for. Otherwise, I I would have caught this film. Um, It didn't get a huge release thereafter, and it was quite difficult to catch in our vicinity. However, I was able to see it several times and sent my dad to see it who loved it and i was surprised because this is a film that is quite alienating when you go into it it mainly follows children's dialogue and very natural children's dialogue so it's not all scripted uh, and these children are running around constantly and then not very nice people in this and i think a lot of audiences want to find characters who they have some sort of affinity and, and a foothold with the only person in this film that you may associate with is William Defoe's character. Yeah. So the Florida Project follows a motel that's on the outskirts of Disney. And that's where the name comes from. The Florida Project was originally imagined as a complex, a living complex by Walt Disney himself, who was building Disney World at the time. And he imagined these beautiful communities on the outside of Disney World where people would live in luxury and you know have all the disnification behind it however these motels who are inhabited by people who are on government support yeah lower income families and absolutely and this film primarily follows uh, a young mother a single mother whose daughter runs riots around very young daughter around the age of maybe seven eight something like that and she runs riot around this whole complex full of People who are scraping to get by, whether that be dealing drugs, smoking, drinking in front of kids, hawking their wares. It's just not a very nice place to live. And the only person who a middle class audience could associate with is William Defoe's character, who is the caretaker of this motel. And he's doing the best to keep things in order. He is the sense of authority throughout this film. And his appearance comes properly a little bit later in the film and if you're not already on board with this film within the first 10-15 minutes I know a lot of audience members walked out of that particular yeah. screening that you wanted uh, to see Mike because they just didn't have anything to latch on to that's my main feeling behind this however if you persevere I think this is a beautiful film and just the way it crescendos and people felt there was no narrative behind it but in actual fact if you sit back and let the images play out on screen and and the characters do what they want to do. The narrative is there. It's just not explained to you to the end. And that's what a lot of people go, okay, we need need to put a bomb here and that will explode that and then we'll destroy the evil baddie and that will be the end of the film. It doesn't do that at all. It lets you go and it lets these characters organically run riot in the world. So The Florida Project by Sean Baker was one of my picks for 2017. Lady Macbeth. What do you know about this one, Mike? I know that I should have watched it by this stage, and I still have 
haven't, unfortunately. Um, starring Florence Pugh, uh, set in, I believe, the 1800s? Something like the turn of the century, something like um, that. Yeah. And yeah, set on, in Scotland, I believe, and sort of rural estate. Yes, basically, Lady Macbeth's husband dies and she inherits his estate there and then things happen once again not trying to spoil it it is available to watch on amazon prime if you have a chance and uh, we have a wee clip from it where is my husband gone away away that's what i said to do what nothing for you to concern yourself with but i do concern myself there's been an explosion at the colliery at amble explosion how did that yes, happen catherine an explosion. I leave for London this morning. You'll be on your own for a while. Perhaps you'll find that your energy is restored after a little of your own company. And when your husband returns, you can resume your duties with more rigour. Madam. There we are, clip from... Lady Macbeth with Florence Pugh there trying to defend her home and castle, I guess, in a way. Takes a twist at the end of the film that you don't expect. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a great example of independent British filmmaking. William Oldroyd there as the director. He will go on to do bigger and better things than this. It's just you know when you see someone in their infancy going into these films as a first directed film i believe so yeah we'll see a lot more of him and and a lot better things so lady Macbeth available on amazon prime and my pick for the year mike uh yeah so next up would be raw which is the film by julia de corno is a french film after a vegetarian trainee vet undergoes a hazing ritual she starts to develop strange appetites it is a quite shocking film in places um it has a very frank sexuality that i think typifies most french cinema they're just quite honest and open about sexuality and about sex it is a film about uh awakenings both uh carnal and carnivorous uh, which yeah, I was quite proud of that line. I'm not going to lie. Good. Yeah, it's it's got a sort of slightly hallucinatory, dreamlike sort of tone to it, where you're never a hundred percent sure whether what's happening is real or imagined. There's definitely a, a hint of Gaspar Noé in there. So the the hazing that goes on in the corridors of this uh, university, veterinary school, yeah, had very much a feel of some of the horrible corridors in irreversible in yeah. the infamous fire extinguisher scene the colors that come through are very neon and there's this yeah. loud pumping french house soundtrack i love french house a uh, lovely french house soundtrack that that runs through it i saw this a year and a half ago two years ago uh, at the London Film Festival, there is a review on filmseekers.com if you look that one up that's there. People knew what they were walking into from reading the brochure and buying tickets for this film. And yet four, five, six, maybe more people walked out of the <laughs> screening <laughs> because they were so disgusted with it. Yeah. It is a perturbing film. The effects are all practical. Yeah which it makes such a difference to the film. Yeah, definitely. The practical effects are so realistic. They're as very well. well done, yeah. Um, and it did turn... It was genuinely turned my stomach, this film. It's not for the weak. I I'm. I feel I'm quite hardy to these things. I've seen some of the most horrific films that are out there that 
apparently people gone you know a vomit afterwards seeing there were moments in raw where i just felt my stomach going uh, and i've well, never felt that before weirdly enough it was not the moments that you would probably expect for me um there is a moment where um you see someone licking someone's eyeball <laughs> and that genuinely creeped him and grossed me out more than anything else in the film um i was also distinctly uncomfortable at a moment when the main character is scratching i don't recall this furiously scratching and it just made me so uncomfortable but yet the stuff that i think would bother a lot of people it didn't affect me i i think that does say something about me or possibly about my viewing habits as well subtle things though can be quite annoying yeah the scratching thing is obviously something that you don't like yeah it's like when I'm eating food with my hands, I hate feeling sauce on my hands. You know, it's, one of, it's just one of these yeah, little funny... Weird little quirks yeah. that, that everyone has, yeah, you know. Absolutely. And um, if a film can tap into that, great. You know, not going for the obvious all the time. Yeah. I really, really love this film. Uh, it didn't make my list because, weirdly enough, I class it in that weird Oscar festival season where I saw it a year and a half ago. It is a slow burn, I would say, as well. It's not for yeah, someone without quite, any patience. Quite deliberately paced. Mm. Yeah, I... I think maybe if you're expecting an all-out straight horror film, you're not going to get what you need no. out of this. Um, it, it's one where, I mean, typically I, I consider myself as a big horror fan, yet I don't really like most of the sort of traditional horrors. The ones that stick with me are, again, it's about getting under my skin. It's about it's about creeping me out on some level that stays with me rather than just, it's, it's easy to startle someone. A loud bang, you know, a, a shock out of nowhere. Well, you just ruined my surprise there. <laughs> but you know that that that's simple. Whereas to get into my head and actually creep me out, mm. that takes skill. That takes ingenuity or, or creativity or something different. Um, and so those are the horror films that definitely I respond to and that make my best of list often. Okay, raw. Yeah, best of 2017 there for Michael Ross. Another one of yours, Mike here moonlight and this was obviously the controversial film that had the envelope switched at the oscars <laughs> but a deserved winner of best picture i would say and why is that mike um it is brilliantly done across the board so it's it's amazingly written it's amazingly performed it's amazingly shot and scored and structured so it's a triptych narrative so there are it's three parts You are following a young African-American gay man living in a tough neighborhood in Miami. Uh, So you see him uh, as a young child, as a sort of young adolescent. Yeah, about 12, 13 maybe. And then as a young adult, Mm. so sort of early 20s. Um, And it's it's these little sort of snapshots of that time in his life um, that just... It it was something I hadn't seen before. Mm. You know, you sort of, there's, um, yeah, there's familiar characters, but that are given far more depth and nuance than they are normally in the sort of films about tough neighborhoods or sure. ghettos. You know, if you think of sort of the, the boys in the hood and, mm-hmm. and things like that, menace to society, um, you're, you're used to seeing people of colour, black men portrayed a certain way on screen. I mean, in, in in the final part of this film, we spoke about the three parts there, as an adult, he, Chiron, who's the yeah. lead character that we follow through these films, he is a built brick 
house. <laughs> I wasn't going to use the word that I was going to yeah. say there, but he is huge and he's wearing all this bling. Yeah. As he's a drug dealer, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Dealing drugs, wearing the sort of the traditional costume that you would expect. Like you say, he's, he's very built. Um, he even makes reference to, I, I built myself from the ground up. You mm. know, it's, it's a constructed image. Mm-hmm. Um, he gives him these, these depths and 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 soul that you often don't get to see in in characters like that or in films like this. It's a very nuanced character, this softness about him that lies behind this harsh exterior. And as you said, it confounds your expectations 100%. Directed by Barry Jenkins. Yes, uh, adapted from a stage play as well by Barry Jenkins and then directed by him. And Barry Jenkins is someone who is very steeped in the history of film. He is someone who loves art cinema he yeah. cites andrew arnold i think as one of his heroes isabelle Huppert certainly is mm-hmm. one of his heroes i saw a wonderful photo of him mugging uh, alongside isabelle Huppert at uh, the oscars <laughs> yeah, last nice. year a very accomplished director and i can't wait to see more from barry jenkins yeah i wholly agree with that this is a guy who knows what he's doing and knows from studying very very hard from what i understand he knows how to get you know the best out of the screenplays yeah. And from his actors. And one performance that was astounding during this film and very, very small, Naomi Harris. Yeah. Britain's Naomi Harris, who you would have seen in the James Bond films. I think she's Miss Moneypenny, isn't yes, she? Yes, that is correct. She plays uh, Chiron's, Chiron's mother. Mom. Chiron's crack-addicted mother. And so you might think you know how that character would go. But again, this film confounds your expectations and it gives her more depth mm-hmm. than that. It, it, you know, you you see some of the pain behind her, behind her eyes. You know, the what sort of driven her to this. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, Mahershala, Mahershala Ali as well is in the first section of the film, but yet his performance and his character rings strong throughout the entire narrative. Oh yeah, it resonates, it like vibrates throughout yeah. because it has lasting effects on the the, on the boy, the, the main Chiron. character. Yeah. yeah, I love this film, and I think that I probably I'm not as high as it as as you are, Mike. But it's it once again it's in that weird Oscar period where it sort of skipped my best of the year, and I personally I don't count anything that was counted for Oscars last year, yeah. but. It was released in the UK in 2017, so yeah, it qualifies. I, I, I saw it in cinema last year, so it, it qualifies for, for me, at least, in that regard. Currently available to watch on Amazon Prime, if you haven't seen that one. High recommendation for Moonlight. Now, here is a film that we both are super, super high on. A British independent film from Francis Lee, starring Josh O'Connor. And I want to say the other character, he has a... a is it a Georgian name? Uh, Alec Sekaranu. Alec and yes, I believe he is Georgian. Okay. Uh, God's Own Country concerns, once again, a gay tale yeah. uh, uh, about uh, two people who incongruously meet on a farm. And yeah, so there's uh, the sort of the son of the owner of the farm and then uh, the Romanian migrant worker who is brought in for lambing season. And the farm is failing without this outside cheap labour. There's a very right-wing feel to the farmer who actually owns it, who is suffering from MS, I think. Yeah. Josh O'Connor's dad is suffering from MS, can't do the work anymore like he used to do. Everything is on Josh O'Connor's character to look after his dad, look after the farm, and bring the money in to support the family. You know, the world is on his shoulders. 
but he is a young man. He's a bit of a Jack the Lad. He doesn't have any friends. He doesn't really have that much of a social life anymore. His friends have all gone off to university and they're yeah. all, they've all come back and he feels very disconnected from the world that those friends are now in. He's, he has changed in that period that since they have gone to university. Yeah, he's at the stage. All, all he seems to be doing is attempting to dull his ennui with hard drinking and casual sex we beyond that we don't really see any societal sort of any social aspects like you say we don't see him really interacting with many other people he he seems to be quite solitary and he confounds expectations and stereotypes once again this hard exterior of this farm boy essentially yeah is having gay sex with people in the toilets of a uh, cattle market cattle i market. believe yeah, yeah it's a cattle market you don't expect that from his character he's he's not effeminate which is no. what we're used to seeing gay characters unfortunately portrayed as in mainstream films yeah this is a british independent film and so it does something a bit different i think the authenticity of his homosexuality is definitely sh- seen through the explicitness of his carryings on. Yeah. I think they're on an equivalence with what you would see between a hetero couple. Yeah. But I it's shocking fair. because we don't see it. That yeah, you're often, not used to seeing it. Unless you watch a lot of gay pornography or something or, like that. Or, 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 or gay film. Gay cinema, yeah. 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 Um, um but it's it's on a par with what you would see with a hetero couple, which and it shouldn't be shocking to us. And I gr- I think this film goes a long way to Unfortunately, normalize. Uh, I say unfortunately. Unfortunately, in the that sense, it's necessary to to normalize this. And the relationship between Josh O'Connor's character and what was the chap's name again? The Alex Sekarano. Alex Sekarano. I don't know if both of them are gay, but I believed in the film that yeah. they were a, a gay couple, and it's beautifully done. There is very little dialogue between the two. It's all done through physical acting these little movements here or there, these yeah. moments of silence. Affectionate gestures. All of those sorts of things just play into... You get a rounded understanding of their relationship. Yeah. It's just deftly done, and I, I think a lot of that's not only down to the acting, but also Francis Lee's direction. Yeah. He has produced a magnificent film here. Uh, won loads of British Independent Film Awards. It's up for... I think it's up for a BAFTA because it won, took the top prize at the British Independent Film. Yeah. Deservedly so, God's O Country makes our 2017 list. And we have a wee clip here. That bit in the fruit cocktail you can have. Yeah, go easy on that. Want that lad picking up in good time. Why do I have to go? I'll wind your neck in. I didn't even want him here, did I? You're the only bugger to apply. Let's at least get him here in one piece, shall we? Whatever. It's always down to muggins here. Oh, enough, mardy arse. You're getting on me wick. And next up is Brawl in Cell Block 99. Michael, tell everyone your experience of watching this film. Yes. Uh, so this was one that I was lucky enough to catch at the London Film Festival. It was actually the UK premiere of the film uh, with director S. Craig Zala and star Vince Vaughan. 
introducing the film mm. and then a Q&A afterwards with the director and uh, producers. What a nice experience that must have been. It, it was quite, yeah, it was qu- something quite special for me. I'm not going to lie. And we talked about experiences, you know, lending a bit of gravitas to yeah. liking a film. This probably did a bit for it, you? you? I, I think so. It's, it's one that I very much like the film regardless of this, but I think it's possibly on my on my list because of the experience of watching it. Okay. I finally caught up with this today, in fact. Uh, finished it off today. Brilliant performance by Vince Vaughn. I did not expect Vince Vaughn to be able to pull out a, a performance as this. We're used to seeing Vince Vaughn in a lot of knockabout slapstick stuff. He has done yeah. it. Didn't he do uh, the last True, not True Detective? He was, yes, he was in the last season of True, True Detective, Detective, yeah. yeah. Which he got panned for, I, be- I believe. Yeah, I mean, the whole series just got kind of panned to a degree. He is amazing. In, in Brawl in Cell Block 99, it's I'm I've used the phrase before. I'm making it a thing. It's mm-hmm. the start of the Vornaissance. <laughs> I I want it to happen. He he showed me with this film that he can act. Um, and so yeah, I want to see more of this. He's um the next film that S. Craig Zala is doing is also uh, starring Vince Vaughn. Oh, so excellent. they clearly enjoyed the working relationship that they found on this film. Now, Craig Esala so, works with a lot of people in his next films that he's worked with previously. So the previous film he did to this one was... Bone Tomahawk. And he worked with Don Johnson in yeah. that film. And Don Johnson returns to this film yeah. as a, a prison, prison warden. Yeah. So do you want to just give a summary of what goes yes. on in this film? Uh, so the story follows uh, Bradley Thomas, who is Vince Vaughn's character, a former boxer who loses his job and turns to drug running to support his soon-to-be-growing family, only to find himself in prison after a pickup goes wrong. It goes very wrong at that point. And it's a very violent film. We've spoken about this before, Mike, yep. on our BFI sort of look back at London Film Festival. How visceral, and it doesn't shy away from the realness of bullets going into people's faces. And, yeah, or um, or the, the damage that can be done to someone um, by someone who knows what they're doing when it sure. comes to fighting. Um, it's practical effects as well, which just helps to make it that more visceral to, to to make it connect with you more than I think CG, for example, would. Um, and Craig Esala doesn't do things by halves. And if you've seen Bone Tomahawk, it is a Western horror film. Yeah. Which once again shows the horrors of people's bodies being ripped apart yeah. in front of you. And he does it in a way, like you said, with practical effects. It's slightly genre specific yeah, it's like the exploitation sort of genre because it, you can, it definitely has that vibe you can see that it's not necessarily always realistic and there no. are certain things in brawl and cellbuck 99 uh, which didn't work for me because the realism of using practical effects looks a little bit tacky but i don't know if that's craig asala harking back making reference to yeah. the things that he grew up on so for example i won't spoil anything in the film but it reminded me of uh when the face melts in raiders of the lost ark so those kind of practical <laughs> effects where you yeah. know it's probably at the time it was shocking but looking back on that scene now you think oh okay it's a bit tacky yeah, a little bit ropey a little yeah. bit ropey but they were doing the best they could with what they had and they wanted to keep it real without resorting to visual effects yeah i liked jennifer carpenter's character in this uh you yeah. will know jennifer carpenter from making the remake of the spanish series wreck uh, called Quarantine. They did a shot-for-shot shot remake. She's also the sister of the lead character in the Dexter Dexter series, which yeah. is about murderer. Craig Azala uses a lot of interesting choices of lighting in this film. He, it's very much a film that has a blue 
gel light sort yeah. of shone on it all the time. There's always a very, very cold palette going yeah. on in the background. Whether he's in his cell, whether he's driving his car, it always feels very steely and, and, and blue. The blues is definitely a a theme throughout of the film. Um, well, yeah, having um, attended the Q&A with the director, I know that he was looking to harken back to the films that he grew up on. So it's stuff like Death Wish. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think, but there were a couple other examples that he gave that are of that sort of, of the sort of 70s time period that did have this sort of quite cold sort of look to them. I mean, I mean, Death Wish is a rape revenge film. When you have something, a horrific act that's being or being threatened or being committed, the audience then can get behind the protagonist to then go forward and, and get their revenge and, and get yeah. some sort of justice. And I think that that dynamic works in this film. Yeah, in I would I would definitely agree with that. Um, I also loved the uh, soundtrack, which is uh, tailor-made for the film. So S. Craig Zahler worked with someone to write all of the songs, all of the music in the film, and then got uh, blues and soul artists to perform it for oh, wow. it. I thought they were actually recorded songs. No, they are all written for the film. For the film. Yeah. That's, that's and, very impressive. And they, I mean, I mean, they are, they, they feel like songs that you could have, you know, that you could stumble across on an old Motown record course, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Old 70 um, sort of funk vibes. Yeah. Going on. Yeah. I, I thought they were retro records, but that's, that's amazing to know. Udo Kier, who <clears throat> is a star of exploitation films. He yeah. was in one of the human centipede films, I think. I believe so. Yeah. And, uh, and, loads of straight to dvd films from back in the day that i used to love stumbling across <laughs> late at night he is famous for being in these type of exploitational films and i love the way that zala's included him here udo Kier does one type of person and that one type of person works extremely well yeah. in this instance i think this film is for people who are fans of exploitation films yeah definitely or, or genre films of of other kinds definitely and it's an easy watch there are no real overarching themes going on no they're there if you want to look look for them maybe a bit slow paced for your your average audience or your typical audience member i think because it it is very slowly paced it, it it takes its time and you have a lot of of sort of preamble before it really kicks off at the end. Yeah, I mean, it kept me going through the yep, film. Same. I'm a very patient person anyway, but I think I think the the run of the film was well paced. It's just where the main action sort of happens all seems very condensed within the the latter part of this film, like in the last ten minutes or so. Yeah. And it all, like you said, it all really does kick off. And this is something I've seen in Bone Tomahawk as well. It's yeah, very it's similar. Similar, yeah. Similar in its structure. So, Brawl in Cellbox 99 is on Mike's recommendation for 2017 yeah. and available to stream now from all good websites. Dunkirk made the BFI's top list, made the. Uh, box office mojo, most amount of money for the year. I guess this is probably the most commercial film we're going to talk about in our top 10 for the... Yeah, year. I think that's yeah. fair. Maybe Baby Driver as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, Dunkirk, directed by Christopher Nolan. No matter which way you saw it, whether it's on a tablet, a tiny screen, or a massive IMAX 70mm print, it's all the same film, but obviously in different ways that you saw it, it may have lent more to the experience, and we've obviously spoken about experience before. It's told, uh, a tale told in triplicate over land, sea, and air. Yeah. All three of which are on different timescales. Yeah. Not inherently clear from the start, something mm-hmm. that I found no. out afterwards. And I think that's 
possibly slightly to its detriment. I would have liked to have known a little bit more of a marker yeah. on that to understand what was going on because there were some points where characters' actions overlapped and you didn't really understand where you were at that point in the film. What drew you to Dunkirk, Mike? Um, it's one that, like you say, it. I, I personally saw it on a cinema screen. It wasn't IMAX, but it was it was a large screen with a good sound system. And Christopher Nolan just makes films for cinema. Um, and so it worked for that. I thought the narrative was very tense and gripping. It was a... It's, nominally a war film but it's a war film unlike many that you would see it's more focused with the personal struggles of a group of soldiers rather than the large-scale machinations of the war machines or the the countries behind it it's about a fight for survival and and that is expertly realized throughout this film that you follow Fionn Whitehead's character i don't even believe he's named right um and you are just fully taken along with him in his fight to just get off this beach to just get away from from this horrible situation it's also often war films they have a patriotism or a sort of jingoism yeah i think about films like saving private ryan for example where you are immersed in the action straight away but yes there is this sort of undercurrent of patriotism do it for our country yeah cheer for the whereas this it 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 felt like it acknowledged that war is is hell and and so it completely you know these there are characters that occasionally do some what might be considered sort of cowardice but it entire you entirely understand and you entirely empathize with them because you get this this sense of desperation from them of they they just want away from this which you you know I, I, I having never been to war sure. but I can entirely empathize with. I mean, it's very British. It's reserved. Yeah, it's very reserved. Yeah, because we are Brits and I like you said the jingoism is not there for me at all. Um, Beautiful to watch, great performances yeah. by other subsidiary characters. Uh, Kenneth Branagh there on the sea. Yeah, I thought uh, Anarin Barnard, who is the uh, one of the the soldiers, uh, I thought he was great. He, I don't believe he speaks a word, but I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Um, you think about Up in the Air, we had Tom Hardy there. Flying, with his eyebrows. <laughs> with his eyebrows. <laughs> and on the boat, trying to get away, one of the... Uh, disasters, Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance. And uh, Barry Keegan. Co- uh, Keegan. Co- Keegan, there yeah, you go. Barry Keegan, um, who appeared in uh, Killing of the Sacred Deer. And has, has a number of films coming up this yes, year. Yes, one to watch. Yeah, definitely. Um, so... Dunkirk, highly recommended from both of us. Everyone knows this film already, so let's skip on to the next one. The Cure for Wellness was one of my picks. A horror film, not many people like this film at all. It uh, stars Jason Isaacs there in in the baddie role, but also Dane DeHaan. And I thought you would have liked this one a bit more, Mike, because you're a fan of Dane DeHaan. I I think you haven't seen this one. Yeah, no, it's it's not one I I didn't catch in cinemas and and haven't really sort of seen anywhere in terms of DVDs or or streaming. And Um, and that's a shame, really, because I think that there was a lot to take away from it, seeing it on such a big screen, because it feels very cinematic because you've got Gore Verbinski there, uh, directing at the helm yeah. and it feels like you're getting real value for money with this it's six films all in one <laughs> you've got the horror going on you've got drama going on there's comedic elements going on yeah and it 
for me, it tied up quite well, all those bits and bobs going into it. But a lot of audiences, members that I've spoken to since found all those elements too much for them. They just yeah. wanted one type of okay. film. Um, has the standout scene of the year for me in 2017, which is a scene in a local pub with some miscreants uh, in the bar and Mia Goff, who is quite a striking young lady. Yeah. Uh, very, a certain look about her. That's why she's a model as well. And she is then grinding and dancing when someone puts this track on the jukebox and this track on the jukebox just works perfectly for this film. So the, the premise of the film, The Cure for Wellness, is an ambitious young executive is sent away to achieve his company CEO from an idyllic but a mysterious wellness centre at a remote location in the Swiss Alps, but soon suspects that the spa's treatments are not what they seem. And yes, it is definitely bang up there, one of my favourite films of 2017. Next up on our list for our best films includes A Ghost Story. Now, this also had a, a striking scene. Do you want to set the tone for the film? Uh, yeah, so it is um, a unique exploration of love, loss, legacy, and the profundity of existence. What a word. Yeah, a uh, recently deceased white-sheeted ghost uh, returns to his home to try to reconnect with his grieving wife. Okay. Short um, film, 90 minutes long, I think. Yeah, cool. but one of the best for me. It, it's as we're not We're not ranking them, but it's quite high up there for me, this film really really had quite a profound effect upon me okay and, and, and for what reason um it's i i'm not entirely sure it's it's again very slowly paced it's gorgeously shot um it's again not something that i was necessarily that aware of during the watching of the film but afterwards thinking about it there were shots that that just stuck with me like i think i could have most of the frames from that film as a poster on my wall quite happily because they are just amazingly constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at times it's bleak at times. It's funny at other times. <laughs> yeah. It's transcendentally uplifting and moving. It takes what is just quite a unique vision or image the idea of a man in a white sheet as a ghost but yet manages to make one of the most moving films with it do you think it was uh, I, so it was casey did, affleck yeah. then rooney mara in the two lead roles <laughs> in that film and so it's casey affleck and rooney mara in the two lead roles of that film did you think it was Casey Affleck underneath the sheet? I think it was for most of it, yeah. I mean, I, it I might honestly, be preferable to some people who... If, if it who, wasn't Casey Affleck, yeah. Who, who don't like uh, his personal... Which I entirely understand. Um, however, I I just think he is one of the best actors working at the moment. I, I find him endlessly watchable. And there's something about his physicality that was that just made me think it, it was him the majority of the time. Okay. It's a very quiet film, non-verbal for the most part. Uh, as you said, this sheet's just looking around all yeah. the time. Uh, almost feels like a Terence Malick film in places where you see the passage of time skipping forward and backwards and the places where this person ends up in. And notable for the pie-eating yeah. scene. Um, and should we leave it at that? I, I think so, yeah. That's That's... 
Yes, uh, you will never look at uh, an ap- apple pie. A uh, chocolate pie Is of it some kind, pie? I think. I don't yeah. think I could do that. Um, notable for that. Written and directed by David Lowry. And that is also on home release at the moment, yeah. should you wish to catch up on that. Another one that kind of crosses over, I guess, this was 2016 when I saw it. And I said I wasn't including these sort of things. But I think it's important to, to mention this one because I think it went under quite a few people's radars. A lot of people in this that I thoroughly, thoroughly love. Oliver Esaias, who is a brilliant director, wrote and directed this film. And he used Kristen Stewart once again. Uh, Kristen Stewart starred in his previous film, Clouds of Sills Maria, with Juliette Binoche. Yep which I was lucky enough to see at Glasgow Film Festival a few years ago. Personal Shopper works on the premise of a fashion buyer for a Hollywood or a a famous star. And that's all she does. She just buys clothes and dresses them and gets them ready for promotions and hotels. It's really weird, actually, because obviously Kristen Stewart has a personal shopper of her own (laughs) and and to to put herself in, in that situation. She lives in Paris and her twin brother had recently died and they'd made a pact to say that if one had died before the other, then they will let the other person know by making a sign. So Kristen Stewart's brother dies. It's not a spoiler. It's in the beginning of this film. And they have some sort of clairvoyance about them and they, they believe they can talk to the, the other side, as, yeah. you, as you will. It's, uh, once again, a very... We've picked a lot of horror and supernatural films mm-hmm. on this list. Or at least supernaturally in, inflected, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there is certainly that element of that in this film. I think it has one of the scariest scenes I saw last year uh, where Kristen Stewart is in a house and all these insidious films and all the rest of it could learn yeah. a thing or two of the quiet, <laughs> quiet bang, which this film does use in the, that scene, but everything else that's going on sucks you right into it. I was in a pack screening for this and every single audience member jumped two foot off their seat <laughs> uh, when this happened. It was a very chilling moment. I, yeah. I definitely, I don't feel it very often, but I felt my spine tingle and the hairs on the back of my neck and all the rest of it. I was just like, Oh, what's going to happen here? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's a beautiful watch. And that is Personal Shopper by Olivia Asias, available to currently stream on Netflix UK for you lucky people out there. Our next film is Detroit, and we have a small clip of this just to give you a bit of a flavour. Uh, excuse me, ladies. I'm Larry Cleveland. Wouldn't be uh, interrupting a private conversation here, would I? We must be neighbours. I'm Julie, Ohio. Karen, Ohio. I know my last name is Cleveland. (laughs) We're actually from Ohio. Okay, so what y'all doing in Detroit? Well, Julie here is a professional prostitute. Okay. She's kidding. She's kidding. I'm I'm a hairdresser. And a hoe. (laughs) What do you guys do? (laughs) Well, I'm a singer in the dramatics, and uh, Fred here is my bodyguard. The dramatics? Yeah. Never heard of him. But I, I love, I love Motown. The Supremes are my favorite. Well, if you love the Supremes, you'll definitely love the dramatics. And that was a clip from Detroit there, where the band are trying to chat up some ladies outside the venue uh, who are a Motown band that are trying to struggle in the city of Detroit at the moment. And 
horrible things then subsequently happen in this film. So film heavily steeped in race. We talked about Get Out earlier, and this is obviously the black experience within the 1960s, maybe I believe 50s. so, yeah, 60s, I think. Some gunshots go off in this motel, and then subsequently people are held accountable for this incident and horrible things then happen. The film flips itself into almost a suedo horror film at times. Once again, horror-inflected mm-hmm. film. Great cast there with John Boyega showing his worth in a yep. very quiet, muted role. It's sort of almost like the the conscience of the film. We spoke about this in length uh, in our very first podcast. Yeah. So go back and listen to that one if you want to hear our full thoughts on it. A, a great opportunity to see Will Poulter yep. finally come of age, I think, now. As, as... Yeah, I think that's fair. He's He's been putting in great work for years, but this finally feels like he's starting to get the recognition that he deserves. Definitely so. Detroit, they're directed by Catherine Bigelow, we must mention as well. Female director taking forward, uh, interestingly, a, a black story, really. Yeah. Uh, but I think done with good faith. I thought so, yeah. Certainly surprised me and uh, took a little while to settle in into where the film was going. And then when it kicked into its own gear, I think I was definitely there for the entire ride. It's yeah. not a film for someone who's easily offended i think no i think that's that's a good there's a lot of racial language there's a lot of violence in particular there's very much a sense of injustice running through it as well uh and might incense you if you're of uh, that mindset but detroit definitely made my list and yours mike honorable mention for honorable me again. mention for you definitely my top 10 uh for 2017 one other film that made my list for 2017 is i am not a witch we have spoke about this film a lot mike you haven't <laughs> got around to seeing it yet no haven't haven't managed to yet but it is very high on my list it was already on my radar and then obviously your glowing review um has has, has bumped it up to the top of my must watches it's finally come out on uh, video, I think, this week, and it is directed by Ningano, Ningano, Rangane, Rangani Nioni. We got there eventually. And it follows a story of a young girl called, I think her name is Shaila, Sheila, Shaila, Shula. One of the uh, <laughs> vowels are in the middle of that somewhere. She is an eight-year-old girl in a local village, and she is told that if she leaves this witch encampment, she's accused of witchcraft she has to live with all these other people that are accused of witchcraft she leaves it they're all tied by white ribbons she'll be turned into a goat everyone believes this to an extent because there's an awful lot of supernatural belief in africa a lot of people believe in what you get the witch doctor thing going on but people believe in witchcraft and it's interesting to see the juxtaposition between the modern world and those ancient held beliefs and how the two live side by side it's also a story about women and the way that women are treated in society not favorably (laughs) <laughs> that's the long and short of it uh, yeah that that was not me laughing at the plight of women by the no, way it's <laughs> laughing at the fact that there's no surprise yeah yeah um and i have to say uh, what a wonderful performance by the little girl in the lead role there her name is if i can find her and she's not even credited as the first person <laughs> no. there which is awful she is the lead of the film and i think that it would be doing a disservice to to say that anyone else should have been billed before her, but, but uh, apparently everyone apparently else is billed before her. It's, it's damn shame. But Rangana Nioni there with her I Am Not a Witch film available to buy and stream on your local services. Very, very high yay for me because there's so much going on in this film. Silence. It's not a command. <laughs> it's a film. 
by Martin Scorsese. It's the Scorsese film that no one actually bothered to watch because it didn't have gangsters in it and people dying left, right and centre. Um, Guilty. And it didn't have a horrible man trying to take over Wall Street. I think it deserves more. And I think it says a lot about commercial audiences as to why they didn't go and see it. It's set in feudal Japan. I like the way that Scorsese puts himself out there with projects. Scorsese watches a lot of world cinema. And this is reflected in this work, 100%. Yeah. It's a shame it didn't reach the audience that it should have done. I think that Liam Neeson puts in a decent shift. It's good to see Liam Neeson is still a very small role. Returning to, you know, what he, he was known for. What arguably, he does best, if I'm honest with you. Before he became the ageing action star that he is now. The typecast that he is. Yeah. You know, in Jean Colette Serra's films. <laughs> Awful. Or watching him in the, the Taken series. Yeah. Apart from the first, which is, I think is a very good film. I think so as well. And then subsequently, don't bother with the rest. Yeah. It's good to see Andrew Garfield. I'm not a big fan of Andrew Garfield, but he is brilliant alongside... Adam Driver. Driver, yeah. The two work extremely well in this film, which deals with contentious issues around the belief of, in religion, specifically Christianity, the way that Christianity permeated other cultures, yeah. where it didn't necessarily, I would say, didn't belong. It's the way that you're f- forcing your Western ideals on Eastern yeah. communities. It also deals with not only faith, but belief, trust it's a film that doesn't shy away from the horrors of what happened in time there are people being burnt at the stakes yeah people drowning people dying in horrible ways it's not a nice film to watch but it's as you'd expect scorsese has an eye for the camera it is beautifully captured it's a long film it didn't feel long to me at all uh because there's so much going on there there's there's a lot of trepidation as to what's going to happen to this character it doesn't signpost what is going to happen next yeah. you would hope that something would happen but sometimes it it shoots off in little different directions that are quite diverting and quite important to the story it is a saga so scorsese is known for making very long films yeah so just in the same way that we're known for making very long podcasts. <laughs> I mean, maybe not quite to the same high high quality standards, but... No, but it is a compelling film, and it's something that I think everyone should go back and revisit. It's currently available to stream on Amazon Prime in the UK. If you have that service, make that your Saturday, Sunday afternoon film to watch. That's Silence by Martin Scorsese. Call me by your name. You know a bit All about right, this. Mike. Yeah, that's um, your name, Mike. <laughs> yes, it's it's one I haven't yet seen, but I am very, very keen to. Um, I've only heard glowing reviews and, and high praise for it. Um, it concerns a 17-year-old who is um, living in Italy with his family or, or at least spending the summer there. Um, his dad is a professor and has a undergrad student come to stay with them and uh the son and the undergrad student start to fall for each other and a relationship develops between the two of them and if you haven't seen it mike lucky for you that uh, we have a wee clip here i've never even heard of the battle of piave battle of piave is one of the most lethal battles in world war one 170,000 people die is there anything you don't know I know nothing, Oliver. Well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What's things that matter? You know what things. 
Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Because you thought I should know? Because I wanted you to know? Because I wanted you to know. Because I wanted you to know. little clip there from call me by your name where the two central characters are having a conversation around a square i think a beautiful square it's a beautifully shot film as you'd expect from someone who is of italian descent luca yeah. luca is he has captured the 1980s plazas the the, the, the little town center it's just so like you want to go on holiday it's like a yeah it's a bit like a travelogue <laughs> yeah very much so great performances by timothy chalamet who a lot of people have come out and said you know he is a fantastic actor yeah um he's appeared in a few other things since call me by your name blew up quite big um good to see army hammer actually doing something outside of his comfort zone i, I think he's not done an awful lot i saw him last in the man from uncle reboot by guy Ritchie. yeah i think post that i think that film maybe sort of sent him in a different direction and he is now trying to do more independent work yeah, he was in free fire by yeah. ben wheatley and uh, I think he was in Final Portrait, which is the Stanley Tucci directed film from last year with Jeffrey Rush. Yeah. Call Me By Your Name, if you haven't got around to watching it yet, definitely are 100% recommendation from me. Mike, you need to yeah. watch that as, as soon as possible. However, a film that you have seen is... Baby Driver. Uh, so the latest film from Edgar Wright, uh, starring Ansel Elgort, Lily James, uh, John Hamm, Isaac Gonzalez and unfortunately Kevin Spacey. It uh, concerns a young man who, after making a mistake as a child, uh, a young getaway driver is forced to work for a crime boss and take part in a series of heists. So you're just starting your day, or did you just get off? Oh, I don't know if I ever get off. They call, I go. You know. So what is it you do? I'm a driver. Oh, like a like a chauffeur. You drive around important people. I guess I do. Anyone I'd know? I hope not. Well, aren't you mysterious? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so when was the last time you hit the road just for fun? Yesterday. I'm jealous. Sometimes all I want to do is head west on 20 in a car I can't afford with a plan I don't have. Just me, my music, and the road. I'd like that too. That's the two central characters, their baby talking to... Deborah. Deborah. The love interest, or his love interest, rather. Um, yeah, I I thought this film was amazing. It's a highly musical film. It's, it's almost a musical. It just doesn't have musical numbers mm-hmm. in the traditional sense. Um, but it uses music in such an innovative way. Yeah, the, all of the action is on beat. Everything that happens, so gunshots... Uh, sort of car doors slamming, windows breaking, uh, people getting hit, things like that. It all happens on the beat of the music. It's all to the tempo of the music. Uh, So it makes it a very kinetic watching, viewing experience. Um, I think some of the visuals as well, there's an opening scene which uses Harlem Shuffle by Bob and Earl. And as Ansel Elgort's character's walking down the streets, there's this refrain throughout the song that goes, yeah. And you can see that on little signs behind the character as he moves. But it's not done crushingly, obviously. You have to look for them. And you spoke about Easter eggs in this film as well. Yeah, so it's one that 
I, I have read up on a number of the things. Uh, so every character name is a is a reference to old movies or old stuntmen or things like that. There's just yeah, there is so much detail in this film that I can't even remember all of it now. But everything is a reference. You know the. Later plot points are signposted earlier in the film through lines of dialogue. Mm. So, you know, killer track is mentioned and that is the track played when someone dies. And and it's, it's little things like that, um, that just, it really worked. It it takes, um, Edgar Wright's stylistic flourishes from his previous work, which if you've seen the Cornetto trilogy or, um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, he is a very stylistic director, but yeah, it sort of it marries them perfectly I to the subject material. Absolutely, I think this is a lessons learned from previous works. He still retains that sort of, I don't know, personal edge that he had with the Cornetto trilogy, so yeah. that's Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and World's, World's End. End, and then the slick visuals of Scott Pilgrim versus the World, yeah. and he makes. What is nigh on a perfect action blockbuster film? This is how blockbusters should be made. And we sat and watched this together. And my first response turned to you was literally those words. This is how a blockbuster yeah. should be made. Yeah. It's a satisfying film to watch. It's not trying to be super clever with its themes going through no, it. I know a lot of people um, had some issue with the simplicity of the plot. Oh, okay. It's, 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 you know, it's not an entirely original plot, but that doesn't matter for me when what is done is done so well. Mm. And it, it it's homage to the sort of classic road movies that Edgar Wright grew up loving. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not going to be wholly original because it, it's sort of nodding the head to those films, but yet it's doing something entirely new and different with it for me. Sure. Um, there are there are a few little faults in the film. I can pick th- to say that Jamie Foxx doesn't elevate a, beyond the stereotype of a hard black man, crazy gangster yeah. kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. he's he's. Um, I think you even maybe made this point, but he's playing a character we shall call MF Jones, right? Um, from if you've seen the um, horrible bosses films. Yes. He's he's a comedy character in that. Yet he's almost playing the, the same, same character in, in, this in this film. Yeah, which is a bit duff really. I love the love story in this film. I think yeah. it's really beautifully played out. Reminded and well me, earned as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. Hints of true romance in there yeah. for me. The t- probably was a touchstone that Edgar Wright used because he is cine literate. And mm, if you want to see how cine- To the nth degree. If you want to see how cine literate Edgar Wright is, go back and watch Spaced. Uh, the series, and if you can get hold of a DVD copy of that, there is a trivia track on the subtitles, which will throw up on the subtitle track every film reference that he is using <laughs> when you're watching wow, the space yeah. series. It is awesome, and he has clearly earned his place of where he is today through a lot of hard work and a lot of watching classic films. Yeah, he's he's just a brilliant director. Depth of knowledge. Baby Driver, one of Mike's 2017 picks there. Blade Runner 2049. We've spoken about this before, so I'm going to be very, very quick and say, this is my film of 2017, Mike. Would you believe it or not? Wow, okay. Didn't make the BFIs list, which I was quite surprised by. Didn't make 
any other list that we've talked about, not the, the, certainly not monetary terms. No. It was but... a failure at the box office, much in the same way that the original Blade Runner hmm. was, ironically. I think there is a lot to take away from Blade Runner 2049. I have such a love for the original Blade Runner. It was one of my formative films. And I was so trepidatious going into this film because I didn't want to undo some of the stuff that I loved about yeah. the original film. Uh, and in the same way we've talked about possessiveness of Star Wars fans, I guess I had some part of that. I'm not faultless. I, some of that. No, I'm, I think whenever there's something that you truly love, uh, that's a form of entertainment, you can't help but have a slight sense of ownership about it. It's, it's not necessarily right, but I think it's unavoidable. He definitely doesn't ape... Ridley Scott's original, and this is Denis Villeneuve that we're talking about, the French director who is famous for doing Prisoners with Hugh Jackman. But the film that brought him to everyone's attention was uh, the French film Incendies, uh, which you need to watch if you get a chance. It's based on a play. And Villeneuve doesn't do a rework of Scott's works. Apparently Ridley Scott was on set during the filming and eventually Denis Villeneuve told him to go away in no uncertain (laughs) terms uh, and let him do it. So he was there as an advisor. Harrison Ford returns uh, as Deckard. It's not really a plot spoiler. He's on the poster for a start. All of the promotional material, yeah. Has a very beautiful look about it. The sci-fi elements have been brought up slightly to date, but still contextually you could see it within the old Blade Runner world. Yeah. So Atari yeah. is still a big company and, and things like that. I think Coca-Cola features in it as yeah. well. Ryan Gosling is just brilliant as the lead investigator. And this plays into noir conventions as well. Uh, I love a good noir. You're a fan of a noir yeah. as well. I think the the performance that a lot of people haven't spoken about is the uh, imaginary assistant slash girlfriend, the, the digitized assistant girlfriend played by Ana de Armas. Yeah, Joy. Joy, as the character is known. I've, I thought she was just brilliant at playing his girlfriend in such a authentic, not over-the-top way. Yeah. Which if you've seen... Knock Knock, which was the film with Anna Damas in uh, trying to hustle and swindle uh, Keanu, Reeves. Keanu Reeves in a very sort of sexual and temptuous way. Yeah, um, could have easily gone into that area, but she clearly has some range about her. Yeah, and in yeah. this film, does it brilliantly. And there's also a, a, a sex scene in this film that's imaginatively done. And I, I know some people. F- found it slightly sort of gratuitous but i didn't at all i thought again it it served the story mm-hmm. and and so for me that sort of that makes it work you know it's it's not just oh let's have a sex scene it it furthered the plot it gave it you even any more, nudity in that. no um but it gave you more sort of character and but i, I remember hearing people complaining about it at the time but the Okay, so normally people who take umbrage with these sort of things would complain that there's too much nudity involved in these films. In that particular scene you're referring to, there's no nudity. It's perhaps protracted slightly and made people feel uncomfortable in that sense because there is a long build-up and then there's a long sequence of having copulation. I guess. But... It's it's not gratuitously done or so I I, I don't quite... I I think that's a, a boon to Denis Villeneuve 
himself to have achieved a gratuitous sex scene without any nudity. <laughs> yeah, he's he's done the Hitchcock shower scene of <laughs> sex scenes. Yeah. It's brilliant. I managed to catch this in the biggest uh, IMAX screen in the UK at the BFI. I saw it in 3D, unfortunately, which was not really my choice, but it doesn't matter because it was the biggest screen in the UK and it's <laughs> huge IMAX screen as well because he shot most of this in IMAX format. Once again, we spoke about films where you could take every scene out looking like a canvas. Yeah. This is one of those films. I am trepidatious going back to revisit this because I think I might start pulling things out of it that I don't want to. I've already ordered the 4K uh, Blu-ray version <laughs> with the nice shot glasses, uh, the, the whiskey glasses that uh, Harrison Ford drinks out of in a particular scene. So Blade Runner, I'm going to come out and say that that is the best film of 2017. 17. I nearly said 2049 <laughs> then uh, for me. And then finally, just one, well, we'll go on to honourable mentions, shall we? So honourable mentions for me uh, include 20th Century Women, which was the three-hander with Greta Gerwig, Elle Fanning and Annette Benning. And I don't know why Annette Benning hasn't been nominated for more films she was also in another one of my old honorable mentions which was film stars don't die in liverpool which no one seemed to go and watch with jamie bell one of the best portrayals of a love story i saw last year on screen uh ma vie de courgette my life is a courgette probably one of my favorite children's films of last year i think yeah it's it's an honorable mention for myself as well in terms of documentaries we didn't have any documentaries down there shamedly i'm not sure negro was one of my highlights and it follows a main person who wasn't i guess part of the he was part of the civil rights movement but he wasn't up there with martin no is it was involved but isn't as well known as, as martin luther king or malcolm x yes but yet sort of was knew them both and, and was involved in the movement yeah james baldwin is his name and he was a writer and a prolific writer at that and he delivered speeches at cambridge at certain societies and com- once again went against people's expectations you had a very eloquently spoken man talking very eloquently and sensibly about these issues of race, I think that puts some people in elitist places on the back foot. And it's a very open and brutal, honest portrayal of James Baldwin's life. He's not a perfect person, but it's by Raoul Peck. And uh, interestingly, uh, Samuel L. Jackson does some narration, definitely one on my honourable mentions. Atomic Blonde, I thought was going to be a, a brainless action film with Charlie's Theron gratuitously there as the male gaze to this film went completely against that for me although you could read the film as that it has one of the best action sequences I saw all year yeah. in a stairwell uh, the violence is very very real and hard hitting yeah uh, Charlie's character is badass in a way that women often aren't allowed to be on screen and and it isn't sort of it isn't like Oh, she's a kick-ass lady. She's just kick-ass. If if you know what I mean, it sort of it didn't feel like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna focus on her butt as she's kicking these guys' butts. It was just kind of like this is a tough person. Yeah, it doesn't matter that she's a woman. She is just hard as nails. Based on a graphic novel as well, which I was un- unaware of until I looked up stuff afterwards. Um, also, there's James McAvoy in there in a, in a smaller role. Which <laughs> a, a great little role. A great well. role. Everyone seems to have forgotten about James McAvoy. Uh, I didn't think Split was that good enough to get on, even onto my honourable mentions this year, but it seems to have worked for some other yeah, people. Yeah, a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people. Um, I know I'm rattling these off very quickly, but uh, they're in notes, so flick up and have a look. The Red Turtle we mentioned last week from Michael Dr. Witt, uh, 
one of the most beautiful animations I've seen in a very, 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 very long time. Unfortunately, there was so much good stuff, I couldn't cram it into my best of of the year. But if you're currently streaming on Amazon Prime, go and watch that. Tony Erdman, the funniest German film you will ever see. Um, <laughs> not meant that many German comedies about. About an overbearing, annoying father and a very professional woman. Has one of the best uses of a Whitney Houston song that uh, has ever been committed to film. Then finally, my other sort of recommendation, I guess, is the Safdie Brothers' Good Time. Uh, I think I'd be a bit amiss not to include that yeah. in the, uh, a genre film. Robert Patterson, once again, coming out of his shell and doing something very, very different. Barkard Abdi's in there as well as a slightly minor character. Amazing that one of the directors stars as one of the main characters with uh, learning difficulty. I think it's the best way to put that. Crime Caper, sort of, sort of George and Lenny vibe from of Mice and Men. Yeah. That dynamic going on. And it's currently available to watch on Netflix UK. We'll be back after our final message. Hey everyone, I'm Jason Michael. And I'm Lee Brady. And we're the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. The games begin chaps there who have done their best of 2017 and that is jason and lee check them out on the atlantic screen connection podcast mike i know you're very tired <laughs> and very hungry and want to get this over as, as soon as possible as i would if i was tired and hungry as well however let's give some free stuff to some of our committed listeners yeah, we have a competition woo, woo. Uh, and it is for the film thelma by Joachim trier he has done previous films such as Louder Than Bombs with Jesse Eisenberg. And this is him going back to his native language. I think it's Norwegian. Could be Swedish. I have the notes in front of me somewhere. <laughs> Where are they? Let's have a look. Um, Jokam Trier um, from Oslo. Where's Oslo? Norway. So it was Norwegian. I was right. And it stars Ely Harbo. Uh, and it follows... Uh, she's a young shy university student and experiences... A violent, unexpected seizure at a library one day. She quickly learns that the seizures are symptoms of a mysterious supernatural ability. I saw this at London Film Festival last year as a press screening. I loved it. I was, like you, Mike, quite hungry and tired at the time. <laughs> but it's something uh, I want to go back and watch. I think it's a very committed performance by the lead actor. And the supernatural element is really played with in a subtle way. Yeah. We have two DVDs, thanks to Thunderbird releasing to give away. It is released on home video on the 26th of February. So mark that in your diaries. I think it's one of these films that you should at least rent and, yeah. and watch. It is a beautiful experience. And the way you can win it is by simply sending an email to us. So if you send an email to us, hello at filmseekers.com with competition Thelma in the title and your name and address. And if we pull you out of our draw, then you will win a copy of this brilliant film. Isn't yeah, that good? How great's that? Very little effort on your part, I oh, must no, say. You just have to send an email. Yeah, easy. 
But uh, while we're giving away free stuff, let's give away some free recommendations, Mike. Okay. So onto our home and video streaming recommendations. You don't get away that easy this week. <laughs> We've recommended all these other films today. We're going to zip through these ones as quick as possible. So Netflix UK, I recommend In Bruges on the back of Martin Madonna's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri being in cinemas currently. It stars Colin Farrell along with Brendan, Brendan Gleeson. Gleeson. Yeah. And is there Peter Dinklage in this film? Uh, no, he was, he was supposed to be, um, but he was unable to do, um, which is why he appears in Three, three Billboards, because uh, Martin McDonough wanted to work with him. And this is the story of uh, Hitman in Bruges. And I'll leave it at that. It's in Belgium. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> and if you've seen the film as well, yeah, that, that's a little nod. <laughs> we'll get that one. Um, and it's a hard-hitting, uh, lots of, sweary swearisons but brilliantly as as, as mcdonough sort of has proven with his films he has a way with cursing yeah. um or yeah he has he has skill with profanity um and so yeah it, it's very well used if you have the dvd um i thoroughly recommend the extra that is effing bruges and so it is a supercut of every swear word oh, and every mention of bruges in the film. Okay. It, it is amazing. I have a copy of that on blue. Hopefully that extra is on there. Yeah, I mean, it may well even be, you could possibly find it online at this okay, point, right. for all I know. But it's I know every time I watch the film, and I've watched it quite a few times now, I always watch that extra okay. afterwards. Uh, that's good to know, Mike. Fount of knowledge, as always. Your recommendation for Netflix UK, Mike? Uh, so my recommendation for Netflix UK is The Power Rangers. Well, this is unexpected. Um, so that was the film that came out last year. RJ Seiler from... Um, Me, Earl, Earl and the Dying Girl, who I, I think is brilliant in general. And also I thought he was good in this. It's it's a fairly brainless film, for, for me at least. There may be others who, who can find depth and meaning in it. I watched it as a sort of throwaway. I was, again, I was quite tired. I wanted something easy and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. It, for me, it is the Power Rangers by way of the Breakfast Club, which I've heard a lot of people mention, and uh, Chronicle, which I've not heard anyone else mention, but the way they sort of discover the superpowers, the superpowers and, yeah. and sort of them exploring their powers really reminded me of Chronicle. Um, I, I went in with very low expectations into the Power Rangers films. I saw the original Power Rangers film in 1993 hmm, yeah. or whatever it was. So it was terrible. Awful. I mean, awful I loved film. it at the time. But I, I didn't. Looking back, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a terrible film. I went into this with, yeah, round my feet expectations and I came out of it very positive. Obviously, it's faithful to the Power Rangers sort of lore. Mythos, yeah. yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Banks does a good job as the yeah, vil- villainess. Having so villain. much fun, clearly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's um, a very panto role. Brian Cranston, a little bit wasted. Zordon, isn't it? Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, I thought Bill Hader did great work as... Uh, the little robot thing. Yeah, Al- Alpha something. Alpha 5? Yeah, something like that. I don't know, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I watched it a week ago and can't remember, so <laughs> that maybe says something. But it's it's a good watch. It's It's a good fun watch. If you leave your brain at the door, some impairment required you can have a good time with this film. If Mike's recommendation is not enough for you, then take it from me for someone who doesn't really watch these sort of films and came out of it quite positive. It was a great way to spend a couple of hours. Amazon Prime for us, Amazon Prime UK, so this may not be international, but if you're in the UK, you can certainly watch Mindhorn, which is a British film from the Baby Cow House. It's a famous comedy production outfit headed by Steve Coogan, who is uh, a famous 
British actor. He's in uh, a lot of TV series, primarily known for being Alan Partridge, but also other egos such as Saxondale. Yeah. And he's also in The Trip, which I think has crossed over into the States as yeah, well. Yeah. So The Trip to Spain, uh, The Trip is the first one. I think they've just done a trip to Italy as well, I which I so. haven't got round to watching yet, with Rob Brydon. A really fun series where they play with the, the real life of them being actors and having to go and review restaurants. Um, so it's almost like a Suedo documentary, but it has flights of fancy in there as well. Uh, Mindhorn is uh, very comedic pastiche on the 70s sort of detectives. 70s 80s sort of tv detectives yeah. yeah this is a detective who lives on the isle of man he's searching for some sort of plot he's trying to uncover and he has the one unique power about him which he's he can see if you're lying because he has a bionic eye <laughs> it's a funny film it's not a perfect film but it's a funny film and it's headed up by julian barrett in the lead role as mindhorn your recommendation mike uh, so my recommendation for amazon prime uk is uh, the Big Sick. Oscar nominated The Big Sick. Yes, uh, nominated for Best Original Screenplay, starring Kumail Nanjiani and written by Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the true life, or based on true life tale, of a uh, comedian, mm-hmm. a stand-up comic, and uh, the woman who heckles him at a gig... And the relationship that forms then, she is uh, she is put into a medical medically induced coma, yep. and he has to sort of navigate meeting her parents and and dealing with this very serious illness and 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 sort of events, despite the fact that they have not been together that long. You could consider it a spoiler. It's a rom-com, so you probably know how it's going to end. But Emily V. Gordon and Kumar Nanjiani are married. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really, this, you know, this really happened. Um, stars Kumar Nanjiani, Zoe Kazan, who I think is brilliant and doesn't get enough praise or Ruby work. Ruby Sparks is, is, is what you'll probably know her yeah. from. Holly Hunter and Ray Romano as, as her parents are brilliant they both are of them brilliant i love holly hunter anyway i find ray romano intolerable, intolerable yeah. at times but he is he is really quite he is, good he, in this. yeah he is actually very very good in this uh everyone hates raymond by the way um, <laughs> but in this ray romano is excellent he, he he's down to a t also this the cultural sort of thing which is not actually played on an awful lot um obviously kamal nanjiani's character as kamal yeah. himself uh you'll has, be shocked to hear <laughs> has pakistani uh heritage yeah he has expectations cultural expectations for him to meet that that's from his family from his yeah. family so he, he's expected to have an arranged marriage i think or an, yeah. a, an agreed marriage and that's that's hinted at it's not labored on which i kind of liked about it it could yeah. have gone full on with that yeah, but yeah. it doesn't his father being played by a very famous bollywood actor called anupam Care. Definitely one to watch. There's a very funny character from Britain in there as well called Adil Akhtar, who was yes. in Four Lions. Four Lions, um, lots of other films. Uh, he was recently in the Victoria and Abdul. Okay. Um, and just, he is another one that he steals every film he's in for <laughs> he's me. Brilliant. Um, and, and every series that I've seen him in as well. He just across the board smashes it. And Mike, you are the sole person to recommend something on the BBC iPlayer. Now, the BBC iPlayer, we are very lucky to have in the UK and Northern Ireland. It is a free service delivered by our 
TV licensing money that we have to pay yeah. because we have a TV in our house. So we pay a set fee every month. And we are able to watch some of the films that they show on that service for about 25 days after it's been broadcast on television. And one of the films you've picked is? Yeah, is Into the Forest, uh, directed by Patricia Rosimer. I apologise if I've mispronounced that. Uh, starring Ellen Page and Evan Rachel Wood. Um, it concerns two um, sisters who live in a sort of remote corner of the forest. Uh, there is a massive power cut, loss of electricity, power outage, and um, the family retreats sort of within themselves. Uh, the two sisters grow to rely on each other quite heavily, and things start to go badly in a local nearby town right. that may Im- impinge upon upon the idyllic setting we, we sort of share with the family. It's almost like an apocalypse sort of. Yes, yeah. but but more of your sort of... Uh, the survivalist or okay. the sort of you're, you're more down uh, low key it's it's not a big hunger games or sure. sort of one of those but but post-apocalyptic uh, how people sci-fi react, yeah, sort of in those yeah sort of situations. exactly it's, yeah. it's it's about the sort of using that as a chance to explore societal norms and and the sort of the breakdown thereof okay so that's uh, into the forest there yeah available on the bbc iplayer for you it has come to the end of the show you may or may not be pleased to hear <laughs> uh, thank you very much for joining us today mike thank you for having me thank you for letting me talk about all these great films that i managed to catch last year we are contactable as usual in the normal way so hello at filmseekers.com is our email address you can uh, follow me at the late great mr on twitter and you can follow me at Filmseekers on Twitter as well. You can also join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com forward slash Filmseekers. Please send us any info or any sort of responses to anything that we said. Any maybe, gripes, may, any complaints. Maybe even send us your own. praise, anything. Yeah, maybe send us your own 2017 recommendations. Ooh, yeah, that'd, that'd be, be nice, great. nice to hear and we can read it out for next show, uh, which the next show we shall be discovering. Uh, the Red Shoes, as mentioned last week. This will be my first Power and Pressburger film and I am very excited to do it. It's uh, one of the first real uses of Technicolor in such an innovative way. Powell and Pressburger, very famous around the late 40s and mid 50s. Massively influential film. Hugely. Uh, we talk about La La Land last year that won all the awards. Definitely, definitely has some sort of influence on that because of the musical elements. It can... You tagged me in a comment on Facebook uh, that was to do with the Red Shoes and uh, how both Andy Serkis and Martin Scorsese find it an enormous inspiration. Yeah, it's a touchstone for both um, of those. And, and for a lot of other filmmakers as well. So yeah, it's it's one I'm very keen to get done. Yep, so that will be episode number nine officially for the next podcast. I want to say another thank you to anyone who's supporting us on all the social media accounts and just anyone who's like retweeting us or even if you're not saying anything, thank you for downloading and listening yeah. today. Really appreciate it. It's nice to have people listen to the work that we put into this podcast and it's an all it is a lot of work that we we do i to, mean to make the, that you do i think no, I, I put in a little bit of work you put in a lot of work okay let's not be too gracious I want to also say thank you to bo from big numb 
for our music on the intro and outro. Uh, it's from the album From Monkey Came Man, From Man Came Me. I actually saw Bo last night mm. um, and he was very happy that we're using the music in an innovative way. Okay. He was. He doesn't want any royalties. That's, uh, <laughs> that was the main thing I yeah. wanted to find out from him. Needed to establish that. Um, but you can buy the album from Monkey Came Man, from Man Came Me, from all good MP3 sites. We don't have a final line tonight because we're not really doing a feature film, but no. uh, we'll have one on the next episode. So episode number nine, The Red Shoes. Until next time, thank you very much for listening to us. That was our best of 2017. Goodbye. Bye-bye. This episode has ended, but your film journey doesn't have to. Head over to filmseekers.com where you'll find more reviews, ideas, and news. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Why not connect with us and let us be part of your film seeking adventure? Oh,